Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux, Freedom Main Radio. Lots of callers. Let's roll. <laughs> well, that's the shortest intro you've ever done, Steph. How about that? All right. Well, it was short until you commented on how short it was. I see. I... Now I'll have to do it again, but shorter. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, up first is Eric and Dina today. They wrote in and uh, said, given what we perceive to be a respectful track record for choosing compelling source material for the Truth About series video post, this latest edition on sex seems to have missed the mark for us after a casual listen and became grossly mis- misleading after a more invested listen. Since when does a report generated by a D.C.-based conservative think tank with a mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies in the United States constitute a valid body of knowledge to anchor such a definitive video title and 45-minute pontification on a subject as widely divergent from culture to culture around the world and often even more diverse within the same local geography in modern urban environments? And it was Dina and who? And Eric. Eric. Well, you know when people start using the words pontification that they're bothered <laughs> by something. So, hey guys, how you doing? Hello. Good morning or evening. Good, good evening. Is it both of you or just you, Eric? It's both of us. Oh, hey, how you guys doing? Good. Right. Good. Well, thanks for calling in. I appreciate uh, the, the pushback. And certainly if we have uh, used erroneous data, we'll obviously put out a correction and this, that, and the other. But... Um, I'm, I'm not sure why you said that we use data from the Heritage uh, Institution. So the, the Heritage, uh, you guys quoted the, the research report itself, which Heritage, uh, I know that they linked to the CDC underlying data, um, but it's 1995 data from the Heritage st- or from the CDC study, and the Heritage uh, report itself was really the um, where you, during the, the, the video, focused people's attention. So it was the Heritage study was this and this, the Heritage study was this and this. Um, Calling forth the meaning from the data. Um, was the data er- erroneous? Well, so it comes down to kind of our question around um, the target audience for this data. So no, uh, no, wait, wait, no, no, hang on. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to get with the interpretation, but let's at least start with the facts, right? Okay. So was the, the data erroneous? The data being a 10,000-person sample survey from 1995 from women uh, from ages 15 to 44 uh, sounds like it's probably not erroneous. Um, the the underlying, uh, I guess, the the people that were born between 1951 and 1980 constitute this, this body that were surveyed um, back in 1995. So not arguing with that, no. Okay, so... Bringing up the Heritage Foundation is kind of a red herring, right? Like the the Heritage Foundation reported on the data, and we reported on the data, but used some of the Heritage Foundation presentation. So the the real issue is the CDC data underlying it, right? No, 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 no. Okay, that's so. Not it's the- it's no. If the data is if the data is correct, then it's sort of like getting upset with the photocopier for the original text. If that makes sense. If the data is correct, then. We need to. We can classify the heritage and focus on the CDC. Um, well, the heritage is where all of the the graphing of the data and the interpretation of meaning wrangled from the data was surfaced and and then was used in the podcast. So I guess it's, okay, but you you can't possibly have an issue with the graphs, right? If the data is correct, then you can't have an issue with the graphs. The yes, I think that that's probably accurate. The data, the graphs, those we're not necessarily arguing with. I think it's the interpretation of and the 
the wrapper of the Truth About podcast for sex that you've okay. put. Yeah. So in in which uh, in which area? And I'm I'm op- open to correction here, genuinely. In which area was uh, the um, uh, the interpretation of the data incorrect? Well, so the how do you want to? So I would say that the area that it was perhaps not so much incorrect, but uh, as we as we listened to it again, it became the essentially quite a a for us misleading sort of this is the way that uh, human sexuality should be understood and and because of this particular data that we're looking at this is the the validation for this view and 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 the the fact that the study was from 1995 uh, the fact that the women were women from 1951 and 1980 were the birth years this is a very different generation very different world that we're that we're viewing data from to make an interpretation for as you said in the the video uh title basically there's some mind-blowing correlation um this is the stuff you need to know before playing the big person's game which makes real people which is kind Mm -hmm. of it's grossly overstating we believe the um the matter based upon the data that you've selected so i think that there's plenty of other data which we haven't, we haven't ourselves gone. Okay, with. guys. I mean, I, I appreciate that we're having a sex talk, but I feel this is all foreplay. If you could just, you know, take off my panties and take me to town, that would be fantastic. I still don't know what the actual issue is. If it's a truth about human sexuality, saying, well, the data is twenty years old, well, human sexuality would not have changed much in twenty years, right? Like, if we're saying here's the average height of human beings, I guess you could say, well. In the Middle Ages, they were a little bit shorter, and maybe in the future, they'll be a little bit taller. But in 20 years, that data wouldn't have changed that much. So if I'm saying sort of some fundamental truth about human sexuality, I don't think that the fact that the data is 20 years old would be a huge problem. Also, I mean, we would really like to have more contemporaneous data, but a lot of political correctness, a lot of you know stuff we've actually just talked about recently with some academics who've come on the show means that, that people have stopped studying this stuff because it's inconvenient to certain political viewpoints. I don't mean to include you. I'm just saying that we didn't sort of cherry pick older data and discard newer data. This stuff has kind of dried up as far as I understand it. Well, so people know, too, the the original data came from the National Survey of Family Growth, which is put out by the National Center for Health Statistics and the Centers for Disease Control. And they do five-year cycles on this stuff. And they have a 2011 to 2015 cycle that's hopefully going to have a lot of the same information, but updated and including men coming out. That has not been released yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing that when it comes out so we can parse that out for men specifically too, since that's a question a lot of people had. Yeah, that, that, that would be great to, to, to add the other flavor because so as we've been traveling the, the view of how families look, so we've been traveling uh, for the past year or so after we left Seattle, um, Traveling through Asia, traveling down now into Australia, uh, we, we flirted with uh, Eastern Europe a little bit. The family structure, the, the happiness factor. So and I think that that was really the, the piece that, that grabbed Dina um, the worst here that made us start thinking about this a little bit more deeply was get to, to get to the happy plateau of a rich and fulfilled life. What does that even mean uh, for most of the other people around the world that are not in the Western propagandized world? Um, the, the, wait, wait, hang on. Are you saying that the people in the Eastern world are not propagandized? 
Differently. D- differently, just so that A different propaganda. Like, okay. D- yeah, completely different. I mean, the, the family structure in, in rural Vietnam is phenomenally strong. Um, the, the happiness of the women, I would say, is arguably not very strong. And uh, so pair bonding, single, in, uh, single relationship that they've had with their married partner. Uh, I'm going to try and draw, draw a little bit of a leap here, but maybe, maybe kind of, can I add in here? You say that human sexuality doesn't change over time, but I would say that it changes no, 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 within no, its society. Hang on, hang on. No, let's, let's be precise. I didn't say that human sexuality doesn't change over time. Obviously it does. And, and I've gone over in the show many times that there's a broad spectrum between the R versus K reproductive strategies, the R versus the R being sort of less familial investment in offspring, quicker development of those offspring versus the K reproductive strategy, which is more investment in offspring. These change racially, these change culturally. Uh, and I also didn't say that human sexuality doesn't change over time. I said there's not a significant change over the last 20 years biologically, right? Okay. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, so, um, we, we're not, we're not in disagreement at all in terms of these things biologically changing. I think the, 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 the matter around this being the pinnacle of happiness or the plateau of a rich and fulfilled life, um, reaching this. Sorry, what, what is the plateau of happiness? Um, it seems like the numbers game. I still look, I really, I'm trying to figure out what you guys issue is, um, I guess so maybe, I, I'm I? trying to sort of figure out you, you've talked a little bit about your travels and but I just don't know what and I'm I'm trying to sort of move this along just because we're going to have lots of people listening to this and I want to make sure that people don't skip over it uh, and and not get the the criticisms that you guys have so if you can just sort of boil them down to where I'm you feel the data or the interpretations are incorrect sorry go ahead I'll try and boil it down how it hit me you can you can rip it apart that's fine but I grew up in a very Christian home uh, my parents kind of thought that they should lock me away from the world and homeschool me for a while and then send me to private Christian school. So it was a very, very full inundation of of that mindset. Um, and my mom told me very early, basically, the, the numbers game and happiness. So if you wait until you're married, you're going to be happy. If you have less numbers, the numbers of sexual partners you have in your life is going to completely basically predetermine your happiness and the the solid grounding of your future marriage and the happiness of your life. Um, And I kind of went away from my Christian upbringing and made my own decisions about how I wanted to, to kind of go through my life. And I decided more that it was about the, the quality and depth and, um, mutual benefit of the relationships that I was in and how good a match this person was for me and how I was growing through life and learning rather than kind of pure numbers. So I went out to the world with this, this fear of numbers of sexual partners, just this, this daunting, crushing, oh man, if I had a new boyfriend for a year and I had sex with him, that's a number, another number. And I'd sit there and count on my hands and I think about my future and how unhappy I was going to be. So kind of going through and listening to this after I'd, I'd done kind of a full circle on this and, and figured it out for myself and hearing someone I respect so greatly, kind of it feels like preaching the same fear of numbers 
and potentially encouraging people, I, I guess, to either give this information to their children as is and say, you know, beware the numbers or potentially men pick their spouses based on how many numbers they've had and actually expecting this to truly manifest itself in the happiness of their relationship down the road versus people thinking they're happy because they're in a a religious marriage that they got into when they were quite young, like most of the people I saw around me growing up, who my mom was was kind of pointing to, these children who were a little bit older than me and married, and, you know, they'd waited, and, and telling me that their life was the happy life. But my life has been quite divergent from that, and feel I've been quite happy. But this kind of brought me back in history to this whole, whoa, numbers game. So I guess that's where we started talking about it and started dissecting it. And I think it would be more fair to give you that that story up front. So, I mean, it really reminded you of a parental lecture, right? And and a pretty unwelcome parental lecture as far as I understand it. Well, a parental lecture that gave me a lot of fear and discomfort about my relationships and my sexual life for quite a while. Right. And when you say fear of numbers, um, it's not obviously, you know, it's not the numbers, right? Like if I got shot five times, I'm not afraid of the number five, but the actual five bullets, right? So fear of numbers is a way of kind of discounting the, the data, if that makes sense. I'm not too sure I fully, fully follow. Well, you're saying it's just, it's an, it, you know, you've used the phrase number game or it's a fear of numbers and so on. Um, but it's not the numbers. The numbers aren't the problem, right? It, it's it's whatever goes on that produces the numbers that appears to be having a tendency towards a problem. So the fact is that you've had, uh, obviously, more than one sexual partner, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, these numbers say that the more sexual partners you have, the less likely your marriage is to succeed. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a wonderful marriage and have 20 sexual partners, right? It just, these are the odds, right? Um, some people smoke and live to be a hundred, right? I mean, that's not quite exactly the same because smoking has other effects. But what you're saying is basically, uh, I have beaten the odds, which is the entire point of odds. It doesn't determine where you end up. It's just that, you know, if you've had a huge number of sexual partners, your marriage has like a less than, I think it's about 20% chance of surviving in the long run. But so you're saying, well, I'm not in that 20%. And so I'm not sure what the issue is. That's perfectly encapsulated within the numbers, right? I guess it's it's more that the information is presented with quite a bit of, this is the most important thing everyone needs to know. This is the information that you need to know to start living life. I think you said something about, um, I don't know, kind of like raising your children and having sex and having partners and reaching this plateau of a fulfilled life. This is this is the one thing you need to know. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that being told to me when I was young and you kind of telling a bunch of other people to tell that to their children and not really focusing on the factors around all of these Wait, sorry. Are you saying that? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Dina. Are you are you saying that there are facts 
or or tendencies or trends that we should withhold from our children? Well, it would seem to me that teaching a child more about how to pick people in their relationships and have wisdom in that area without just telling them, you know, the, if, if you wait to have sex with your husband, you'll have a happier marriage. When I think it's but a that's lot... What, no, hang on, hang on. <laughs> the facts are that if you wait to have sex with your husband, your marriage is far more likely to last. And so I'm not sure why, why I would want to withhold idiotic. those facts from people. I mean, how many people wait to have sex until they're married? I mean, but that doesn't that has no bearing on whether it's true or false whether that, that what, whether that's what the facts said if if the facts say that i'm not sure how it's beneficial to withhold that information from people i'm not saying it's deterministic but those are the trends so the i, I i'm thinking here as i listen in, as i'm listening to you guys talk about this so the 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 world has changed tremendously not biologically for us individually but Ideologically, the the rapid change of relationships around the world in at least those uh, parts of the world where there's a bit more of a, um, a renaissance in relationship, sort of thinking for yourself, self ownership. These ideas where we've broken we've broken some of these older um, pair bonding um, requirements of of um, not not to say that they're good or bad. They we've we shifted the mindset of, um, let's, okay. Um, we shifted the mindset of how we look at relationships quite a bit and to look at what we perceive as self-reported data from women in this age range in this particular generation, which were highly religious, perhaps as the foundational, um, body of who these people were. So, those that well, wait, wait, wait. I don't. Sorry to interrupt. I don't think that the study asked any questions about religion. Well, I think that's we're we're making a bit of a we're we're making a bit of when we hear this data, when we hear of you, you, um, women in the United States from this particular period of time, we're making a, a broader inference of who are those individuals that are waiting to marry. They're going to be in this highly religious category. We perceive, and so this is our, a bit of our own. Inferring from the data, more of a conservative society than we have now, with much more repercussions for earlier sexual conduct. Right. Okay. Got it. So, and we, so our generation, we're a product of that generation, and our perception is that we've devolved quite a bit in terms of the the family unit, the family structure, as all of these these points that you've talked about for many years, the, the the disastrous effects of this. We agree with you. We think that that is what's causing a lot of the schizophrenia in the the mindset of relationships of today. However, the relationships of today, um, comparing them as a one-for-one sort of uh, relationship from this data from this previous religious, highly, much more religious generation, we're, 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 we agree with you that having quality partnerships and limiting frivolous sex is a good thing net net good but putting it really into the world of of owning your relationships with others and owning your um um your desires when it comes to exploring sexuality 
in a safe and consensual sort of way. Uh, and I know that you talked about getting into the, the polyamory monogamy porn uh, for some of the future discussions here. Um, the These options were so incredibly aberrant back in the 1951 to 1980 days, whereas now they're wait, much... Wait, wait, hang on. Have you, you guys ever heard of the key parties of the 70s or the free love of the 60s? I'm not sure how sexual experimentation is somehow uniquely confined to your generation. Um, well, from... You want to it, I guess this? maybe my mom is wrong, but she went she went to college in in San Francisco in '69, and her take on it, or at least what she told me, was that most of society was still quite conservative. What we imagine, and you might know more than me because I wasn't born yet, what we imagine is just this giant orgy all across America was much more of a kind of highly publicized minority of the population is that not true no no i i get that but i mean i don't know that you're going to have much luck countering a pretty rigorous set of data with my mom said uh, no i just asked you if it was true or not i don't know well i don't know if it's true or not but i i do know that um divorce uh, rates went up three hundred percent or more in the 1970s and there was a sexual licentiousness that certainly seemed to be floating around quite a bit in the 70s. I yeah. just don't know that. I mean, and sexual licentiousness was very big in the French Revolution and the ancient Roman Empire. I don't think we have a monopoly on sexual experimentation, you know, that's popped up over the last 20 years. I think there's been quite a lot in society uh, in, in the same way that, of course, not everything was Woodstock in the 1960s, but not everything was Leave it to Beaver in the 1950s either. There was a jazz scene. There was a... Uh, uh, a, a scene that was uh, quite sexually experimentative, but but nonetheless, let's let's get back to some of the. I'm sorry, go ahead. You want to say? Oh, I was just going to say, um, in the 70s, very much, and I kind of commented on that to Eric when we were looking at it. But when you're looking at the the data for women in stable marriages, um, the last year that they could have been born was 1965, so they're kind of growing up, and probably a majority of that data was from earlier people who are born earlier so it okay carry on right. i was just diverging okay so let's uh um get a bit more into sort of where where you guys are at if that's all right so um how long have you guys been a couple five four years four or five years yeah. something like that and are you a monogamous couple yep yep all right and prior to becoming a couple, um, what was your uh, number? I don't know. Not like it was super high, but I don't know. Probably Just in roughly. The, probably in the 15 to 20 realm. And how old were you when you got together? We got together, let's see, 29? 28. 28. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And uh, Eric, what was your number? Um, it wasn't, uh, roughly, I would say eight or nine or 10, I forget. I don't know. So, and, and yeah, this, this grows fine. out of a little bit of our, so a little bit of our background and, and why I suggest where we are today ideologically and from a, um, educational perspective on relationship. No, hang on. Sorry. Cause we just, and I, I, I want to get to that and I promise yeah, that okay. I will. Go ahead. But. I'm just trying to um, uh, to to figure this uh, this yep. part out, right? So, um, 
So, Dina, you had between 15 and 20 relationships um, over 10 or so years. Is that right? Or 15 to 20 sexual partners over 10 or so years? I think so. Yeah. I'm just curious why that's so hazy. Um, I don't know. Because I didn't sit down and specifically count it out before I got on the phone. Okay. And um, what was the longest of those relationships? Maybe three years. Oh, okay, okay. And um, the next longest? There was a bunch of year-longs. And what about one-night stands or, or very short flings? I think that there was... I think the shortest was maybe a couple weeks. And was that because you were traveling or was there some other reason why the relationship didn't last? Um, a couple were traveling. Um, and then, I, I guess, before we got together, um, we were both poly. So that kind of would be a bit more. So there was a few that were added on during that time, which were a little bit more short, but they were still kind of durations in and of themselves, if that makes sense. And so you got into, uh, you had a couple of boyfriends, were they polyamorous and they convinced you or were you polyamorous and convinced them or were you both polyamorous at the beginning? Well, um, <laughs> I, I was kind of just giving it a try on my own. So I, I guess it just, it, it wasn't a very long stint for me. So it just kind of turned into more of what we would imagine dating in the city would be like uh but with i'm sorry i don't i don't understand that so the the polyamory came about was it part of the beginning of the relationship or did one party convince the other by convince i don't mean anything nefarious i'm just you know somebody no, has it, to bring it up right it came about as a a thing that i was desirous of trying oh you so you wanted to be polyamorous and you said to your boyfriend i'd like it if we could both date other people but remain in a sexual relationship with each other well, I was single at the time, so I had had a boyfriend, and I'd usually, I mean, a lot of times I'd have a boyfriend for a year and then kind of have a year of singleness of just nobody, no partners in between. So this was more of a, I had lived in an area and been around people who were doing a lot of polyamory and more kind of the kink side of things quite successfully in their lives. and. I was single and I figured, I think that I've learned about as much as I feel like I need to learn from the relationships I've had to find one that is really lasting. At this point, this is the time I'm kind of looking for the culmination of all these, all these kind of things that I've found to be the most important. And, uh, it's not coming around. So. Maybe I'll try this poly thing for a little bit and have some fun and see if somebody falls out of that. And if not... And so, sorry, I, I thought polyamorous was when you were in a relationship but dated outside that relationship. Is it different than that? Is it that you just are dating a number of people simultaneously and they all know about that? Well, at this point, that's what it was because... So you kind of have to designate a primary if you want to have that structure. 
Um, since I was well, no, doing- I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about the theory. I'm just ask, asking, sorry to interrupt, but what you did in particular? I didn't have a primary boyfriend at that time. So you slept with a number of different men, but they all knew that you were sleeping with other men? Yes. And how many men at a time? Um, well, I couldn't quite rationalize myself with doing it completely all at a time. So I sort of had these three relationships that were stretching. And then I wasn't... Sorry, I'm really not sure what stretching means. To, um, let's say so three relationships that were going on for a couple months simultaneously, but I <laughs> I only slept with one person for sort of the first part of our relationship and someone in the and another one kind of for the middle and one at the end and then I kind of met Eric and we sort of transitioned out of out of that because he was also poly. And he had much longer relationships. So he can explain it a lot better. This is just No no I'm it's not, I'm not again I don't want the theory, just just your experience. And so you'd be dating a man not sleeping with him, and then you'd say to the man you weren't sleeping with, I want to sleep with someone else, or you'd be dating a man and sleeping with him, and then say to another man, I want to date you, but not sleep with you because I'm sleeping with this first man. It's more like I'd go on a first date with them. We'd talk about a lot of things. I'd say that this was something I was trying, and then we would kind of continue to date and see each other without sleeping together for quite a while. And... <sighs> Kind of by the but time he would, he would know. Sorry to interrupt, but the, the, the new guy would know that you're not sleeping with him, but you're sleeping with another man. Yes. And he'd be okay with that, like you having sex with some other man, but not with him. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you <laughs> don't have to sleep with someone on the first three dates or so. I mean, I. I no, but you said it was a couple of months, right? So for a couple of months, you'd be sleeping with, with somebody, and yeah. Right. So I guess a couple of months. I. So and, the, and this is kind of where one of them was kind of short. So I guess it's, this is where I, sorry, I, I, I'm sorry. Just a sec, just a sec, just a sec. Sorry, yeah. I'm not sure what that means. Do you mean one of the date, one of the guys, or one of the relationships was kind of short? One of the relationships was kind of shorter. So well, what does that mean? I think it was maybe only a few weeks within that time period. So two of them were sort of for a couple months, and then one of them was for a couple weeks, and yeah. So as I said, it kind and of the guy you were sleeping. Sorry, the, the guy dating. you were sleeping with. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. The guy you were sleeping with knew that you were uh, dating someone else at the same right. time. Okay, got it, got it. Uh, sorry, Eric, you were going to say. I was just going to say. So this is why when I put in my email to to Mike about we've we've got a number of experiences that are all related to the topics that you're going to be covering here soon. And in in certain urban environments, these sorts of um, relationship gymnastics and and the mental structures that people put themselves into, um, they allow some pretty some pretty odd relationships to come about. But when you when you really get to know a lot of these people, the the happiness factor, um, it's really really hard to put a um, a capstone on it as any sort of um, you know, these are the numbers, these are the facts, because the these these different configurations work really well while they work, and then you transition out of them and you say, That was a great experience. Now I'm gonna go and do this experience. And and from a lot of the people that we have spent a lot of a lot of our life with, that's perfectly acceptable and, and they've when all parties are acknowledged and heard and um involved in this, uh these sorts of configurations 
seem to, at least from our experience, give you a lot of self-ownership in owning your relationships, owning your, your sexuality, owning your, your, your feelings of happiness in the world as an individual human critter. And did, did any of this um, uh, non-traditional and non-standard relationships, did they ever come with any STDs? No. Well, yeah, mine, my, well, I, had a, I had a close call with one, and that was a big wake-up call for me. Um, but uh, I escaped uh, with everything uh, in good shape. Right. Okay. And uh, Eric, what was your what were your experiences? I appreciate um, you guys sharing with this, and I'm sorry to be overly nosy, but uh, I'm just trying to get the context no, no, of where it, you're coming from. Yeah, obviously the the context of where we're coming from, we wouldn't we wouldn't have uh, taken such a, a a firm sort of madness. This podcast is really raw without a lot of this, right? So, um, our our experiences are pretty valid. So obviously my um, my upbringing. Um, the the parental side of things, child of a divorce, mother that got remarried and got divorced again. Um, so I've been through a lot of those sorts of uh, uh, all of the fallout from from divorce. I know it very well. Um, my own experiences, though, I was uh, since it, since I was a child, I was really left with myself to figure things out quite a bit. And I had a lot of tangential relationships with adults that gave me some ideas of how relationships could look. So I, I spent a lot of time with other families that were not mine, not my mother, not my father. And so I got a real good broad sense of, oh, okay, well, these this is how these people do it. And this is how these, these people do it. These people have kids. These people don't have kids. These people seem happy. These people don't seem happy. Um, so I got a lot of input early on so I feel from my relationship perspective, they've all flown, um, they've all flowed pretty, uh, in the direction I wanted to take them. Um, because I was really solid in myself first and foremost before anchoring to a relationship and putting all of the, um, the, the common keeping everything into somebody else for your own emotional stability. I didn't do, I, I, I don't feel like I had to do that. Um, so much, which, um, which I feel uh, as as I've come through my relationships, I've got pretty good relationships with uh, my exes, and um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if that. <laughs> how much more would you like to know? What would you like to know? Well, I'm sorry to hear about the divorce. How old were you when your parents divorced? I was five. She got remarried at eight. She got re-divorced at thirteen. So. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty tragic, right? I mean, you had a relationship with your dad. He was gone. I assume there was some relationship with your stepdad. Then he was gone. And then there was a new stepdad. Um, no, she didn't get remarried the third time. It was just a stepfather and a father. And yeah. And what, did she have boyfriends after that? No. She's. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine. Well, she had one. Which was well, sorry. I'm not sure why that's. Uh, she, she's. I, I never. So. Um. Uh, this goes into the whole how do you how do you respond to your family and how do you the, the family of origin sort of thing. So for for a long time, your 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 ideas around uh, or not your ideas, but your um, uh, when it comes to defooing, uh, when it comes to uh, 
basically choosing choosing the, the family that you want to, to be a part of because they mutually support you and, and you can actually relate to them. Um, that all made sense to me when I was very young. Uh, so your your podcasts helped to put some some new words around things that I was already quite well versed in. Um, so I, I haven't spent a lot of time with my mother. Um, and it was only just last year when we stopped through that I really realized that I have an amazing um, cat woman in my life. Cat lady, crazy old cat lady sort of thing. Um, and oh, that, you mean your mom? Yeah, she's amazing. Okay. She's just astonishingly out there. So. And Dina, what was your childhood like? Um, very stable, happily married, um, and still married parents. Um, I was an only child. We both were. Um, lived kind of out in the country. Uh, nothing really to complain about besides the religion, but you know that's just part of a lot of people's life. Right. Now, did either of you, I don't know how to put this uh, delicately, did either of you have any, I guess, what would charitably be called premature sexual experiences when you were, say, below the ages of 16 or 15? No. Nope. Well, I mean, I think that um, however people want to do and arrange their sexual lives is of no particular concern to anybody interested in freedom or the non-aggression principle. These aren't moral issues, right? Whether you're polyamorous or not, obviously honesty is a virtue and it sounds like you were honest uh, with everyone. Uh, I personally, you know, if I was interested romantically in a woman and she was like, well, I'll date you, but I'm having sex with someone else, I'd be like, well, good luck with that. But <laughs> that's not my thing. But that's, you know, maybe more akin to personal tastes. Um, but um, well, it's, uh, it's I would, you know, to, to me, it's like, well, if you're not attracted enough to sleep with me, then you should go and pursue the relationship with the guy that you're in. I do think that, and this is just a personal perspective, this is not anything philosophical, but I do think that you know, for, for things you want to get good at, repetition is really good. Uh, like if you want to get good at playing piano, you've got to put lots of time into playing piano or learning Mandarin or something like that. But for breakups, like for long-term relationships, you need to be good at staying in long-term relationships in general. And I think that for a lot of people, because I don't know why there's this correlation between the number of sexual partners and the potential instability of the marriage. But it does, I think that when things get difficult, that's when you need to sort of buckle down and, and work extra hard in relationships. I think if people break up a lot, then they're kind of getting good at breaking up. And that's my only sort of rough theory as to why. And that doesn't mean what people can't change. It doesn't mean that people can't figure out what happened and, and how to, you obviously have gone from shorter relationships to um, a obviously long-term monogamous relationship. Now you're in, your, I guess, your early to mid-30s. So, yeah, people can change, people can grow. But um, my sort of concern is to get the information out to people so that, you know, I myself came from a single mother household and abusive background and so on. So if somebody was asking me these questions, it would be like, ooh, <laughs> you know, that's not very helpful in terms of my sexual market value. However, of course, because I can say, uh, as I did when I first got together with my current wife, listen, I've done huge amounts of self-work, lots of therapy. Here's where I'm at. Here's what I understand about my history. Here's what I understand about my parents. Here's what I understand about a sibling and, and so on, right? And I think that is um, where the, the differences can occur. I think that if people have come from difficult histories 
And uh, I think, Eric, you said something like you got solid with it, which I'd like to ask a little bit more about. If people have come from these different difficult histories and haven't done anything about it and haven't tried to figure things out and haven't looked inward and tried to center themselves and deal with the trauma, they're very risky people to date. You know, it's like getting into a, um, a cab with a, a brick on the gas and the, the cabbie's blindfolded. It's just probably, you know, maybe you'll get there in one piece, but the odds are sort of against it. And I think that if people have looked at, like, this is why I'm constantly saying to people, you know, pursue self-knowledge, um, read books about self-knowledge, go to therapy, because that gives you a chance to break out of whatever history there is. I think we all know, uh, and the data supports this, that, you know, you're more likely to get divorced if you're the child of uh, divorced parents. And so for me, because of that knowledge, because of that risk factor, we should do what we can to alleviate that. Like if, if in my family history, there was some big a problem with heart disease, you know, oh, everybody dies at 50 from heart disease. I'd want to know that. Not so I would be resigned to my fate or say, well, I can't do anything. So I'm going to sit on the couch, eat Cheetos and watch American Idol. What I would do is say, well, if I've got this family history, then I really need to act counter to that. And, you know, be as heart healthy as I can and maintain a healthy weight and exercise and do all of that kind of stuff. So for me, the knowledge that to, to put out there is to say, look, there are risk factors for long-term relationships and that's why you need to be aware of them so that you can act in opposition to those ten tendencies and to those trends. They're not prescriptions. They're not deterministic. They're saying, look, these are the risks. And if you guys have done the work that's necessary to achieve a, a more stable relationship, uh, I mean, I'm thinking, Eric, of you in particular, if you've done the work that's necessary to achieve a more stable relationship with Dina, then you had modeled for you by your mother. And as you said, you did this work to, to get solid with yourself. I think that's fantastic. That to me is taking the information and the risk factors and using them in the right way, if that makes sense. Yeah, and we and we couldn't agree more with that. That's this is where for us the the key piece of all of the key piece of success in every aspect of life is education and and taking some ownership in it. So what do you need to know and then taking action to um uh, as you say the uh, um doing something about it in, in counter counter to, right? I mean, that's, that's what I feel like I did. Um, having pretty terrible models of how things could be, but then also having other models of how things can, um, how other people live, you can then make a choice. And, and that's where the, the choice becomes the, the ownership in your, your, your destiny, if you will. And teaching. And a, teaching I'm sorry, to, go ahead, Dina. To beat these odds, as you say, oh, it's, well, it's the most important that you you know, potentially we'll, we'll see how the rest of life takes us, but potentially beat these odds and teaching people how to do that. I guess along with giving them the base information, because the base information kind of, it almost seems like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy or something. If you just really take it on, but giving people the tools to say, okay, well, for people who don't examine and don't see life potentially as a grand experiment and just kind of play into these odds. I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I guess. Well, I think it's, it's what we talked about with you. You've put out a lot of content around self-work is super important. Here are some avenues. Here are some things you can ask yourself here. Uh, you know, whatever you do, just uh, find a therapist, work on yourself, work on yourself and share this with potential partners. We couldn't agree more. Um, the, I guess the, the, the wrapped up in a bow truth about st uh, segment here didn't mention 
didn't mention the importance of, hey, these are just numbers, take it with a grain of salt, because your relationships with other people can be changed. You can own this, you can change, you can rise to the infinite potential that you have, um, that you've talked about in other podcasts. Well, I mean, I, I think that's implied in the fact that it's, you know, 100% of people, I don't know, who take strychnine die, right? I mean, so, but but if if the odds are like 20%, then clearly there's a way around these tendencies and these these trends. Yeah. And of course, you know, 3,000 shows, at least half of which I'm strongly encouraging people to get therapy. I'm not yeah. sure it needs to be, you know, 1,501. Uh, but, um, and of course we did say very clearly in the presentation, these are not deterministic, these are trends and so on. And, you know, self-knowledge is important. Um, but, uh, uh now are you guys uh, thinking of, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're not married. No. Okay. And are you guys thinking of having kids? No. No. Oh, you don't want to have kids, right? Not at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in your early, th early to mid thirties, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't have a decade in which to decide, right? We have no plans of children at the present. Do either of you want kids? Nope. Not at the no. moment. It, it comes down to uh, your, your podcasts on the, the numbers game of, of having, a chi having a kid, bringing a child into the world. The, the, uh, I think you were gearing it more towards maybe men, why men shouldn't bring uh, children into the world but um there's a lot of factors and and for us the wait i'm sorry I, I don't think i've ever done a show saying men shouldn't bring children into the world um you may i think you made the argument uh or the one of the one one of the ones around why why it's so stacked against men in terms of psychologically or um i forget the one i feel like it had a, a man in a in a prison cage sort of thing as the as the uh the main image thumbnail for it but something to the effect of the the um, the raw deal for men, potentially, if you bring a if you bring a child into the world and you get divorced and 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 all of the things, the the arguments for why men have chosen to not or would choose to not have children. Well, no, I I think divorce is is sort of a different matter, and we'll we've got shows coming up on on the data about divorce. I I don't think I've ever encouraged people to not have kids. I'm a huge. I mean, I have a. Uh, <laughs> Why men don't want to get married? And oh yeah, no, definitely for sure. There's there's definitely a a, um, a bias against men, and the family court systems are biased against men, and and uh, it is a challenge. Uh, so for certainly, I've said that there's some significant challenges towards uh, men getting married. Uh, I think there's ways to mediate those risks and those challenges, uh, but um, uh, that's uh, uh, anyway. Let let's go on. So you, in terms of your thoughts about having or not having kids. Yeah, so I think that a lot of those are a lot of those are pretty valid, and and I think societally and 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 just globally, the the bringing a child into the world as it is today, um, there are a lot of a lot of factors that are really that really play into man. That's that's really not a very good idea. Why would you do that? And no, but that's for that's for guys not in a stable relationship, right? You guys are in a stable relationship as far. I mean, you're planning on staying together. Yep. Yeah. For like ever. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, so that, you know that doesn't that doesn't apply to you then, right? At least my arguments why men don't want to get married because you are in in all fundamental um, manners uh, married, right? Again, I'm not sort of talking about the status piece of paper. I'm talking about yep. the commitment to stay together forever, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, to to take 
the argument as to why men shouldn't, like why men are hesitant getting married and saying that it has something to do with you uh, is not relevant. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about uh, having children yourself, like outside of stuff I've said to unmarried men. People do it for so many terribly selfish reasons. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh... I'm not... But there's other people. I'm talking about your thoughts about it. The... I kind of feel... Well, well, right now in my life, I have no desire to have them. I never say there's a definite... Things always change. People change. I'm open to maybe wanting that in the future, but right now and throughout my previous history, I've never have wanted that also i feel like finding a place in the world in which to have a child and being (sighs) as strong and i guess kind of perfect as you would need to be to make the choice to bring someone into the world and and raise them up it's pretty daunting. And then leaving them in this mess after you're gone. Which mess? Uh, well. <laughs> the world is. Oh, you mean like the sort of the modern world kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot better than the Middle Ages, right? I mean, this is really the most advanced and advantageous epoch that the world has ever experienced, right? I guess for, for short term chunks of, of human life, potentially. So you feel that the world is uh, too disastrous to have children? Disastrous, huh? Or that the the future of the world is too negative or or bad things are going to happen? A little bit of that. It it comes, I think you said it at one point um, with um, the, I think you said something to the uh, I'm embarrassed to, to introduce the world to my daughter sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's lots of really terrible stuff to explain about the world. But there's less terrible stuff to explain about the world now than there would have been, say, in the 16th century or the 10th century or the 8th century or the minus two, second century or something like that. It's like, Daddy, what's slavery? Uh, <laughs> right? I mean, there's terrible stuff, absolutely. And I wish the world were a lot better. But uh, it is... Um, uh, as I've said, I wouldn't want to be born any other time in history. But uh, so, it, I mean, it doesn't sound like you guys have a lot of strong emotional like this or that. There's some vague, well, other people and unease about the world as a whole. But uh, and, and I'm not trying to cross-examine you like the absolute standard has to be you want to have kids. But well, you, you want to, I think, the, the, the idea of, of making making the, the future for your children better than than what you had, I think that seems like one of the most daunting and most one of the most impossible um, uh, propositions to even tackle to say, you know, well, okay, well, given what I know, the knowledge, the knowledge of the potential future that we face as a, as a species right now, um, how can you possibly make it that sort of um, cyclical better for the next generation? Uh, and I know that, that just this conversation in, in itself is, is, opening up a lot of minds and, and getting people to think a lot differently. And hopefully that will make things move in the, in a better direction. Um, but, uh, it's the, it's kind of that, that sense of, of embarrassment and that sense of, man, I can't turn this over to my own 
generation. I'll live in it and enjoy it and and do as best I can in it while I'm in it and touch the lives of those that are already here. Um, but uh, to spark open a new one and, and, and a new consciousness and, and give the give the keys over. I don't know. I mean, your parents decided or, or grew up in a world where there was the Cold War and an imminent threat of nuclear war, and they decided to have children. I assume that you're both happy that your parents decided to have children, right? For yeah. personal reasons, sure. Personal selfish reasons, yeah. So you're, you're happy that your parents defied a very dangerous world and decided to have children? Well, I was an accident, so... And and my... my, my well... A accident when it comes to childbirth is not exactly the same as being hit by a meteor. There's like only Mary, uh, Mary, mother of God, I think, can claim that there was an accident involved. I mean, there usually is some form of unprotected sex or some sort of sexual activity, which always carries the risk of that. But um, but but you're both happy that your parents just like had kids. I mean, plus they decided to keep you rather than abort you, right? We're enjoying life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and if you were diagnosed with some fatal illness tomorrow, you'd be extremely unhappy. Um, so you're happy that your parents with a far more dangerous world than you're facing decided to have kids, but you don't want to have kids because you feel the world could be too dangerous. Mm -hmm. I'm just being a, an, an annoying dick here, just, yeah. just so yeah, you yeah. know. You got a point. You got well, a point. <laughs> you also have a, a little bit of the knowledge. I mean, I can just say the, the knowledge of the, the, the knowledge of the, uh, the world as it was when they had us, I don't think my mother had any clue. She didn't so, know there was a country called Russia that had weapons? Nah, I think, I mean, she, I think that it all in abstract. <laughs> she wanted an accessory. She, yeah, she just, she, yeah. Um, so I, I, it, to me, it doesn't, the, the answer, the question doesn't compute because it doesn't, uh, I, I don't Wait, think. I'm sorry, are you saying, are you saying that your mother didn't know there was a Cold War? I'm saying that she probably realized that something over there somewhere was going on, but she. Oh wasn't. no, no, no! We we learned about this in school, man. I mean, that's like saying she didn't know her times table. No, this was very clearly taught uh, in school. This was not something that you had to go to the far ends of the earth. It's not like achieving wisdom from some yogi in in a mountaintop in India. This was all. Uh, very tough. We had history classes about this. Uh, we had lots of uh, information about this uh, growing up. I mean, there were nuclear drills and, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, no, no, your, your mom knew about the dangers of the world. I, I mean, unless unless she had such a low IQ that um, that she should not have been legally married, right? You have yep. a point. <laughs> I'll give you, you have a point. And here's from a and I'm not. I'm not, I'm not trying to say you have kids or anything. I'm just saying that the dangerous world argument... Uh, I mean, if anyone, like we have the least danger, like the least imminent danger now, then then has you know, the war is at the lowest uh, point in in human history. Virtually, um, uh, poverty is at the lowest uh, area in in human history. Technology, of course, is is so staggeringly fantastic that that we three, and the millions yeah. of people who end up listening to this, who never would have had a chance to talk and have what I'm really enjoying is a very interesting uh, conversation. So if if the it's a dangerous world, don't bring kids into it argument was valid, none of us would be here, right? Because the, the world was far more dangerous during the Black Death, 
during uh, religious persecution times, Salem witch trials, uh, the fall of Rome, uh, the, the, the revolutions, uh, the French revolutions, the even the British revolutions, the religious warfare, the Thirty Years' War, uh, the... Um, uh, the, the wars of Napoleonic conquest, uh, the, uh, the world was more dangerous. And we know that because people had a life expectancy of roughly eight minutes in general. Like life expectancy uh, okay, in so. the Roman Empire was 21 and you, you, no antibiotics. And, you know, one UTI could, could kill you. One toothache uh, could kill you. And the, there's the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. Oh, I mean, nuclear point. war um, to potentials. Uh, I mean, th- it's been a very dangerous planet for... Oh, and they think of a gazelle. A gazelle is like, well, I can't have baby gazelle. There are lions there. I just saw someone get eaten last week. It's like, that's true. Uh, and uh, nonetheless, they still keep pumping out baby gazelle. So I'm just saying that it's not a universalizable argument for us in the present to say the world's too dangerous. Okay. Taken. Sorry, Granted. I'll shut up now. Go ahead. <laughs> Granted. Um, in the culture that we find ourselves living in, it's a bit different than some of our recent history where having children benefited you as as the parent, as the family, as the society. There doesn't seem to be a vast need for more population on the earth right now. There doesn't seem to be a direct need for us personally to create little people besides the, oh, they'll take care of us when we're older which is just a highly not right kind of reason to have children. So besides... Oh, that, I agree with you. Sorry to interrupt. That, that's a terrible reason to have children because... And, and it's, it's not only is it terrible, it's retarded. Yeah. yeah. Because if you want to be taken care of when you get old, save all the money you spend on your children and use it to buy a great retirement home with like fantastic, uh, uh, you know, happy ending, sweetest massages or whatever you want. <laughs> right. I mean, yep. it, it, it and of course, your kids could move away. They might not even like you. The values may change to the point where they you know, have anything to do with you. So the idea that you have kids so that someone will take care of you in your old age uh, is is a completely wrongheaded, retarded, and ridiculous. I'm not saying you're proposing it, but anybody who thinks that probably shouldn't have children because they won't know which end of the uh, of the body to wipe when there's uh, crap coming out. Correct. And um, so right right now in the world. But, but hang on. But the overpopulation thing, the overpopulation thing. You think that there's too many people in the world, and that's why we shouldn't have more. Do you have yeah, something yeah. magical to say against that? I mean, it it seems pretty. It it, it comes. This all comes down to the sustainability. So, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a, an author, Derek Jensen. Um, he asked the question of Do you do you think that this society will undergo a voluntary change uh, towards a sane and sustainable way of living? And most people will say, Well, no. And some people might say, Voluntary? Oh no, no, no. So the 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 sustainability of of the food the sustainability of uh i mean we're looking we're grasping at straws in every aspect possible to come up with technology solutions to give us the ability to i don't know in california drink fresh water be, through desalinization sort of thing uh so i mean every everywhere you look the sustainability the carrying capacity of the planet um i know that there's plenty of 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 gray gray area between the definitely the world is over overpopulated and 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 oh no there's plenty of headroom uh, the, these are the the you could argue those and you could explore those for months and months of research um the overall sense of humanity as a sustainable 
um, as, as a, as a sane and sustainable sort of, um, set of guiding principles for how they proceed forward. We look at that as a bit of, man, this is insane. What are they thinking? And with the, uh, the deforestation sort of stuff, I mean, the, <laughs> we're, uh, I don't know. that's a, that's opening up a huge, a huge can of worms that, that goes into our thinking around why would you bring more people into the planet sort of thing, that question. Oh, I can gift you some fine answers to that if you like. <laughs> having having been someone who's brought at least one other person, I got some kids of my own out there somewhere. It's an old Red Fox joke, if I remember. But uh, yeah, I can give you some good answers to that if you like. I, got one I think they're good. You know, has you one can... more thing. So maybe you can yeah, pick yeah, go ahead. what you want to give answers to. It seems like now... Oh, wait. No, if we're going to another topic, I want to do one topic at a time. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. I guess this so, is um, selfish. I have more of selfish reasons, and he has more broader, you know, the world reasons. So we yeah, can I'm first. not sure that... Anyway, okay. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, let me tell you something. The, the problem with the world is not overpopulation. The problem with the world is the initiation of force. And the world is not exactly overpopulated by people who reject the initiation of force, right? So you listen to this show, both of you, and you're both fertile, I assume, right? And so the world is not exactly chock full of people who are voluntarists, um, people into the voluntary family, people who've got self-knowledge, people who've been to therapy, people who have good relationships, people who reject the state and the initiation of force and understand the universality of secular ethics and value philosophy. We are not overflowing with those kinds of people. So if you guys don't have children, it's not like there'll be more philosophical children well-raised, without spanking, without aggression, without timeouts, without being yelled at, without being bullied, without being stuffed into the brain-mashing, sausage-sitting factory of asswipe government school pseudo-education. It's not like we have a massive excess of those people. We have a massive excess of people who are traumatized and propagandized and nationalized and religiousized and statusized and, and sandwiched in between the various levels and layers of political, parental, teacher, priestly, and government power. We have lots of people who are raised, who are beaten up, and then really, really happy to go and become soldiers or, and go shoot people. We have lots of those people. What we don't have, my friends, my fertile brothers and sisters, what we don't have is a lot of children raised peacefully and well who can make the world a much better place by showing people how well children who are raised well can turn out. So that's my sort of first point. Saying that the world is overpopulated is like saying, well, my uh, body is overpopulated with bacteria that's killing me, so I don't want to take any antibiotics. <laughs> because antibiotics, well, I already have enough stuff in my system. It's like, no, but we want the opposite stuff that's currently in the world. And that means people who are raised peacefully and, and generously and gently and benevolently and rationally and, 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 and so on. Those people uh, will counter the tendency of people to strip the Earth's resources bare. So that's sort of number one. We need better people in the world to counter the breeding fools of, uh, uh, of uh, propaganda and nationalism and religiosity and so on. So we're not short of antibiotics to the general plague of irrationality that is consuming the planet. That's sort of my first. And, and, to, and to say, well, I don't want to have kids because there's too many people. It's like, but there are too many people, even if we accept that argument, there's too many people because the government keeps 
making more people and keeps giving there's no property rights on on the forest which is why there's deforestation uh, and there's fiat currency being pumped out which raises people's consumerism and strips the earth bare of all of its resources and you've got this short-term government solution where it's like buy votes pump up the economy buy votes pump up the economy borrow print borrow print sell in debt borrow print spend 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 and that that's why but so we don't have enough people opposing that paradigm and saying this stuff is evil. This stuff is counterfeiting. This stuff is destructive. We need to stand up against that tide. There's not every kind of person in the world, and it's not like there's just these paint spatters in the world and that, that's, that's turning out sunlight and like, well, I don't want to put another random paint splatter on that. No, you're not going to put another random paint splatter on that. If you guys are philosophical parents, you're going to be raising some people who are the opposite of everything that you dislike and despise about the world and its current tendencies. You're going to be putting a bulwark up against it. You know, it's like <laughs> Genghis Khan and his horde are riding down on a virtuous village, and they all have spears, right? And you say, and I say, hey, man, let's get a spear and let's stick it in the ground so that we can slow down their charge and so they won't un- overrun the village and kill us all. And you're like, oh, man, there are already too many spears in the world. It's like, yes, there are too many spears in the world and they're all coming towards us. So we need two <laughs> spears to go back so that we slow these bastards down and have a chance to win. So that's sort of my... My first point. My second point is that there is a radical depopulation occurring in the world, and it happens to be occurring among whites, and it happens to be occurring among Western Europeans, right? The the, the replacement rate for European civilization, whatever you think of it, the good and bad, the replacement rate for Western uh, civilization is ridiculously low. I mean, ridiculously low to the point where, like, I think 2% of the world's population are Caucasian women of, uh, uh, of, uh, of childbearing age. I mean, it's just crazy. And again, this is not about, you know, whites good or anything like that. But, you know, the reality is that uh, this is a ra- there is a radical depopulation of Western European civilization and its satellite countries. And there's not a radical depopulation in other groups that have not been quite as successful or contributed quite as much to humanity, again, for better or for worse. So saying there are too many people in the world, well, the Freedom Club, which is why we're having this conversation, and the Free Market Club and the Scientific Rational uh, uh, Skeptical Club, uh, which comes out of the Western European tradition all the way back to the ancient Greeks, uh, well, there's not too many people of that culture uh, left in the world, and the, the numbers are declining considerably. And I'm not saying you have any any um, obligation to your culture to breed or anything like that, but um, uh, there is a significant decline in uh, Western European civilization and its inhabitants, and so there's not exactly too many of the Western Europeans left in the world. There's a huge decline in Western European um, uh, stock or Caucasoid stock or whatever you want to call it. It's gone from like a third of the world's population down to like 8% uh, in 60 or 70 years, largely as a result of uh, various government programs and so on, right? So I would not necessarily suggest that you don't have an obligation to your culture or anything like that, but saying that there's too many people in the world. Well, of the Freedom Club, uh, we're whittling down to very little to virtually nothing. And uh, that is a significant uh, issue uh, with regards to the maintenance of, and growth of, of freedom and what's left of the free market throughout the world. So, uh, you know, it's not like uh, if you don't have kids, 
that there's not going to be some, you know, crazy group somewhere out there that's going to have eight kids uh, per family. Uh, they're, they're going to say, great, more room for us. And they're going to move in and they're going to vote if they're still a government and they're going to change the culture to the point where it's going to be fairly unrecognizable to you. So these are other uh, considerations. Plus, you know, the basic fact is you like being alive and people had to decide to have kids and make whatever sacrifices you deem necessary or you, you see as present or existing for those kids to uh, for, to exist, for you to exist. And as I've sort of made the case before, you have um, this great gift of life. Uh, and it is an incredible gift. It is a wonderful gift. You have, through your somewhat overworked penis and vagina system, <laughs> you have a, um, a fantastic opportunity to rub your naughty bits together and convert star sneeze into human consciousness. I mean, what an incredible thing. You, you have, people say, well, God made life. It's like, well, that's cool. But we can all do that with our naughty bits, rub them together, boom, you get life, you get thought, you get creativity, you get brilliance, you get, you know, my daughter is currently writing this song that is really great. This song would never, never had existed uh, had my wife and I decided uh, uh, to shake hands in that Mormon manner and, uh, and, and make kids. And, uh, you know, it's not like the religious people aren't saying, well, you know, there's, there's too many Catholics in the world, so we really okay. better stop having children. <laughs> it's like, well, if you, if, if you guys decide not to have kids, that's just more room for the religious kids. Anyway, that's me at <laughs> the end of my rant. Thank you. Single-handedly answered all of, the, all of the questions that we heard all throughout Vietnam that I never really gave when they said, oh, you have no kids. Why not? <laughs> How old are you? How old are you? No, are you married? How old are you? How many kids do you have? Uh, three questions three. <laughs> on every every good Vietnamese woman's mind. And man. Right. And, yeah. and how, how's Vietnam doing? Are they doing, are they doing all right? They're, they're populating pretty well. They're doing okay with it. Like I, I want, and I say this selfishly, and, and I have an agenda, right? So, and the reason I'm saying that is so that you can discard me uh, and my thoughts at will. I'm really, really keen on my daughter growing up in a world which is, which has more rationally raised children in it yep. right so i'm i'm doing this like i feel like i'm going out alone right i'm like hey let's raise all our kids rationally are you with me and i head out across it's like hello anybody <laughs> anybody i'm looking at anybody come on she's gonna have to grow up in this world i don't want more mormons i don't want more i, I want people in the freedom club people, free philosophy thoughts peaceful come on people Give her some company. She, I'm sure she'll be happy to have more people when she grows up who've been raised peacefully and rationally, who may invent a cure for cancer, who may invent the next whatever the equivalent of the thumb drive is or the email that has cut down the amount of paper that's required in the world for or, or Kindle or tablets or whatever that cuts down the requirement for paper and the, the, the deforestation of the planet, who's going to come up with a cure for whatever may be happening with the climate that could be related to global, global warming, maybe even anthropogenic global warming. They could come up with the cure for that. I just want want those people in the world for my, my daughter grows up so she doesn't grow up and say wow you know dad there don't seem to be any other rational people out here and it's like well yes that's because all the rational people thought the world was overpopulated it's like <laughs> well the world seems to be pretty overpopulated with crazy people <laughs> yes well uh i tried honey i tried telling them <laughs> you know what they were <laughs> yep yeah. All of that, all of that. <laughs> you got a point. One thing I'm, I'm just going to add in because I think you'll like it. We are calling today from Philosopher Falls, the small, 
Yep. Small place. Philosopher in falls. Actually, that's that sounds quite sinister. <laughs> Philosopher stands by the edge of the waterfall. Philosopher <laughs> is pushed. Philosopher <laughs> uh, falls. Hopefully not. Yeah. Who knows how it got its name? I don't There's know. a lot of nice. Uh, <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> set up looking at the falls. So I'm I'm thinking that that's why. Hopefully. Um, Wait, maybe this is we're here because the people are going to sit at the seats and watch somebody push oh, us shit. off. That's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Don't say that you're philosophers. It's like we've been waiting for you. <laughs> This was named for you. Come up to the top of the falls. Oh, it was in 20 years. Yeah. Well, listen, guys, I appreciate you calling in. And thanks a lot for the uh, the feedback. And uh, just so everybody is aware, um, and we'll um, maybe put a link to this on the Truth About Sex video, they're not predictions of certainty. And they hopefully are stimulations to figure out self-knowledge and, you know, I'm, I'm going to assume because you guys are in a monogamous, stable relationship that you prefer it to... Um, uh, the seed spraying of uh, polyamory, which is not to say better or for worse. I'm just saying that you you prefer it, right? And and uh, if there's things that could be done for other people to achieve the happiness that you have in your long-term relationship, uh, I'd like to encourage people to pursue that. But that is around uh, self-knowledge. Nothing that happens in the past uh, is um, a uh, for certain direction of the future other than, say, falling off Philosopher Falls, in which case gravity pretty much becomes determinism. But I really appreciate you guys calling in. I really uh, yeah. enjoyed the conversation. Thank we you. will we make some too. breakfast and yeah. Uh, procreate. Yeah, we'll go procreate now. All right, baby. Uh, send me the footage. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. Well, up next is Justin. Justin wrote in and said, "What is Stefan's opinion on the research out of social excuse me social psychology and persuasion, influence, and compliance, i.e., Robert Cialdini's six principles of influence?" and its application to marketing and or sales. These customers aren't being forced into buying anything, but their decisions can become convoluted using information about their own neurological functions, functions they may not yet even be aware of. Is this moral? Is this ethical? Do you think this behavior would be encouraged or discouraged in a free market? All right. <clears throat> so you're saying that people can be susceptible to uh, other people's knowledge of how the brain works and uh, could be sort of somewhat, quote, programmed to respond in a certain way? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Programmed is a pretty strong word. I, I don't uh, I don't have all the, the information on sort of like brainwashing and whatnot, but I. I no, no, no. I didn't say I didn't say that, that they could be influenced, let's say. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean. Uh, there are psychological tricks people can play or the way that they stack the information that they receive on marketing or in the environment around them that can really guide their decision making and even their thoughts around uh, what they're experiencing without them being fully aware that they're even being uh, influenced in that in that way because it's on such a subconscious level. And I guess I'm curious as to... Um, Drawing the line between uh, which of these techniques or or, or or this application to marketing and business approaches, uh, what is ethical and what is not? Where does it walk that line, uh, or would it actually be con uh, considered a, a sort of coercion because people might not even be aware that these techniques are being used on them? So therefore, is it a force? Is it coercive, or is it actually, uh, I guess, innocent? Well, no, it doesn't have to be a force or innocent, right? I mean, you can manipulate people. And it's interesting that you choose advertising in business when it happens far more and far more deeply and powerfully 
in religion and politics. But, you know, business is generally where people put this stuff in, like it's advertising is the big problem, not, say, 20 years of religious or status propaganda uh, from churches and government schools. But um, no, it's not it's not immoral to to manipulate people. It, it may not be highly ethical, but um, in, in a free society, I mean, of course, the goal is uh, if you're not manipulated by your parents, then you're not likely to be susceptible to advertising. And of course, the goal, one of the major goals of this show is to convince people or encourage people to parent uh, peacefully. Now, when you parent peacefully, you have to negotiate because things, decisions need to be uh, need to be made, and there are conflicts uh, and disagreements in all relationships. So you have to negotiate. And so when you negotiate, hopefully you're not manipulating. Uh, you are simply being honest with your thoughts and feelings. And so if children don't grow up being manipulated, it seems to me very unlikely that they would end up being easy to manipulate as adults. Uh, manipulation in advertising arises out of manipulation that people get uh, as a result of, of churches and, and schools and leftist propaganda, you know, rightist propaganda, all kinds of propaganda. If you're raised in propaganda, you're susceptible to propaganda. And um, so I think that in a free society, uh, people would not be very susceptible to that stuff. It would also be government schools kind of teach you about propaganda, right? <laughs> because that would be to expose themselves. That's like the counterfeiter holding up the counterfeit note and saying, see, not real. Let me show you how you tell. It's like, well, the whole point is they can't show you. So I think that the government schools and, and religions are not very good at teaching children about propaganda uh, because they're usually using it. And so... In a free society, you can teach kids all about our susceptibility to various kinds of propaganda. Uh, like you can educate children uh, about uh, how how they can so easily be manipulated. And the kids would want that. And parents would want that. Because you, if you're not raising your kid by manipulating him or her, you don't want that child to then be susceptible to manipulation when they get older. I mean, obviously, right? I was like saying, I raise my kids home cooking every meal, make sure I know what's in it, make sure it's already healthy. And I really hope that somebody force feeds them junk food when they become adults. It's like that would, <laughs> the whole point of doing that is so they get healthy, learn healthy habits and stay healthy. So I think in a free society, kids would be trained against propaganda and therefore would be far, so, I think, so non-susceptible to it. In fact, would be turned off by it, like too obvious, uh, too obvious a set of propaganda uh, that I think would not work very well. The more obvious kinds of propaganda, or I guess you could say manipulation, is, you know, the old thing. It's like, this beer is next to this pretty woman. You want the pretty woman, therefore you'll buy the beer. I mean, obviously, and that's so irrational, but I think at a biological level, uh, a man's response in particular to female attractiveness or simply to the presence of women or even just thinking about women uh, men's brains shut down, which is not the biggest compliment that females as a gender have ever had. <laughs> you know, well, you see, you're thinking about a woman, you're interacting with a woman, so stop thinking. It's like, mm, evolution, not be kind <laughs> to the to the fairer sex. But um, I, I think that will always be a part of human life. And I'm sure it's the case for women as well when they look at Matthew McConaughey in a fine silk shirt, uh, they probably have some base physiological response. I think that stuff will be there, but kids will be trained about it and so on in the same way that we train kids to say, to understand that, uh, uh, you know, food that looks good 
and tastes good isn't always good for you, that doesn't mean that they'll never eat it or certainly that they'll still be susceptible to it. But wherever there's biological association propaganda still occurring, then, and that stuff isn't quite as common as it used to be, uh, except in women's magazines, which I'll get to another time. But um, I, I keep wanting to go through a woman's magazine and do a show on it. Right. But I just, I can't fondly bid that many brain cells adieu. Um, I just feel like it's just like it's on a pirate ship, just taking your 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 crew and and putting it into boiling shark infested waters to to go through a woman's magazine. Maybe it's true for men's magazines too. I don't know, but uh, at least there's advice from bartenders in it. But um, so that would be my solution. I think people are pretty susceptible to it at the moment, but that's a mere effect of what they're exposed to as as children. So okay, I I completely agree. Um in terms of uh, how a person can be brought up in the family. And, and uh, one thing that I've learned from listening to your show is sort of uh, being able to uh, better identify my own emotions and uh, really sit with myself when I'm realizing that I'm having sort of a, a, a physiological response. And a lot of the marketing techniques that I see being used, uh, I've now become less susceptible to them because I, I you know, detect this physiological uh, you know, either fight or flight response if they're, you know, using a, a technique of scarcity or something like that. And I have uh, more awareness to it to where I can say, you know what, they're actually, you know, using a technique and I and I can detect that and I know that the scarcity could be completely fictitious. So I don't actually have to feel compelled to to purchase this product or this service. Um, I still believe, though, that there's there's definitely a lot of. Uh, I just study into neuro uh, physiology that that you know no amount of uh, uh, I guess education from from parents of the family could even really uh, remove that from the experience. For instance, um, one one study I'm thinking of, and and this doesn't have a perfect marketing application, but I I think it it uh, speaks uh, a lot about how our brain operates. Um, it's based on the contrast effect, where if you hold your uh, two hands right and left in two separate buckets of water with different temperatures in them. One bucket being extremely hot to the point of just almost scalding you and the other being extremely cold, both being, you know, very uncomfortable to hold your hands in. And if you hold it in there for a minute and then you remove it and put it into a bucket, uh, in, in the middle and it's the same temperature, uh, the hand that was hot will then feel extremely cold and the hand that was cold will then feel extremely hot in the room temperature bucket because your brain uh, creates this contrast effect of hot to then it's uh, rapid cold and cold to rapid hot. E even though both hands are in the same temperature water, we perceive it as two different temperatures, even on our own body. And I think when we start to look at how the brain operates in that level and more and more marketers and advertising are, are, are moving in that direction with doing research on even commercials uh, while studying EEGs and fMRIs of people's brains, I mean, you know, at what point is a parent going to be able to, you know, educate a, a child to to not fall for those things? I mean, those are almost based in our evolution, in our in our hardwiring to have our brains operate that way and perceive these stimuli uh, in that way. And so I'm I'm wondering if is is that still considered propaganda? Is it still wrong to take advantage of those hardwirings that are in our body? Um, well, no, no. I mean, look, I mean, advertisers don't have any control over your children directly because as the parent, you can very easily shield your children from, from advertisements, right? Right. So that's sort of number one. Number two, even if the 
advertisements make your child want something, you don't have to give it to them, right? I mean, so that that I don't I don't think that's particularly um, a, a strong case so uh, it, for that. Yeah. The second, sorry, and the third thing is that advertising. That the purpose of advertising is to get you to try the product, right? So. Um, there's a kind of gum called menthos. I think it's called menthos. And I, when I grew up, I had a friend who saw this menthos advertising. And he's like, wow, you know, that, that looks great. You know, the wintry blast of iciness that goes into your mouth and frosts your tonsils and, you know, oh, yeah. right. And he tried it and he's like, oh, my God. He said, you know, after I tried that, it's like, that is the worst tasting thing I have ever put in my mouth. And he said, he said, to this day, every now and then, I like, I can't quite believe it. I will, like, every now and then I will buy a menthos and I'll put it in my mouth just to remind myself how good everything else tastes relative to that gum. And... I'm thinking like one of the heaviest advertised cars in the 50s was the Edsel, which is apparently was a real lemon and didn't sell. The, they spent $100 million trying to advertise new Coke. And all that the advertising can get you to do is try that product. But if you don't like the product, then the advertising won't help, right? Right. In fact, you've just blown a huge amount of money in R&D and production costs and advertising costs. You've just done a huge amount of damage to your business. Advertising can't reprogram your brain. Like there's this um, <laughs> there's this uh, cough mixture. I don't know if it's where you are, but it's up here in Canada called Buckley's. And Buckley's is apparently they just like masturbate Satan's armpits into a jar and call it medicine. And the, the whole time when I was growing up, I never tried it. It's like Buckley's, it tastes awful, but it works. You know, and that, that was their slogan. And I'm like, oh, come on, how bad could it be? <laughs> Right. And then I can't, I mean, I, I, I had it once. Like, I think it was the only thing that, that was around and I tried it and like, damn, those people are really not kidding. I mean, that is just, I mean, <laughs> that's just vile. I mean, if all food tasted like that, we'd all have Brad Pitt's abs. Um, <laughs> so, and did it work? I think it did. Right. I mean, did it work enough for me to want to try that again? If there's any other conceivable alternative, including seppuku? No, it didn't work that well for my particular taste. But um, uh, that is like they're not kidding. It really is just absolutely horrific. I've never tasted anything that bad in my life. And uh, I was a bachelor who cooked for myself. Uh, so um, advertising is not like doesn't just program people um, like it is something that can get you to try a product. Right. But it can't get you like, I mean, I'm telling you, like, I don't drink pop anymore. I had enough people. And thank you. You know, like I sipped a Diet Pepsi on the show and I don't normally drink a lot of pop, but I, I sipped a Diet Pepsi on the show. And uh, I think, you know, it broke the Internet, the number of people who were outraged saying, my God, aspartame and so on. Right. And so I don't really drink. Uh, and I've even had to give up. Uh, I'm on a sort of anti-flatulence kick. Hey, let me expose to you all of my inner <laughs> life. Uh, that is really my, I'm on an anti-flatulence kick. And um, so uh, I'm, you know, red carbonated. So I don't drink anything uh, carbonated and all that. And, um, but but I'm telling you, like I was trying to explain to, to my daughter the other day, you know, she said, well, why, why do people, you know, doesn't look like it tastes very good and you don't seem to miss it. And I said, oh man, but I'm telling you, Coke, 
uh, my memory of Coke, like when I grew up, we were just dirt, dirt poor. And I could rarely ever afford, we could rarely ever afford to have any pop in the house at all. In fact, I remember the rare times we had that <laughs> slovenly RC Cola in the house. If I had friends over like, and, and they wanted pop, I'd have to like put huge amounts of ice in there just to be able to pour to have enough for my friends because we just didn't really have it. And I had a friend who, whose house, like in their basement, they had a, a cold room. You have a, a cold room. And in that cold room, stacked like the very ambrosia of the gods in a ridiculous upper middle class excess was like cans of pop. Like you could just, you could just go in and have cans of pop. I mean, it's staggering. But I remember uh, I used to play a lot of soccer when I was uh, a young man. Like, like, I think I sort of, it sort of faded out for me around the age of 17. But from like 13 to 17, I played a lot of soccer. And I remember once, like sometimes Canada is like the hottest place outside of like active volcano head on Venus or like full sunward facing crater on Mercury. It's just incredibly hot. I guess it's hot like Florida because it can be really humid and it just bakes. And I remember playing soccer and I was so thirsty, so thirsty. And I found a quarter on the soccer field. And inside the school, which miraculously was actually open, it was a Saturday, and I ran in from playing soccer, like, so hot. And I had this quarter. And I put the quarter in the Coke machine. And the Coke came out. And it was, like, it was so good. I, my mouth is watering even now. Like, this is, like, four, uh, 35 or 38 years later. It came out. And you know those beads of, of coldness that they have on the pictures of, like, the beers? And the oh, it's like you just uh, lick the whole glass. And it came out like that with beads of coldness on it. And I picked it up and my hand was so hot. It was so hot. I was like some Greek deity, like not the Midas touch, but the burning hands of inflammant touch guy. And I picked this thing up and oh, like my whole hand had a body chill. It went all the way up my elbow, up to my tits. I mean, it was like frosted Coke boob nipple guy. And I cracked this thing and even that sound, like, you know, just ah, oh. and I like opened it, and you know that little that little that little pop climax that comes out, that little spray that comes out that goes up into the uh, uh, into the air, and it's like, oh, and I like I smelled it, <laughs> oh so good, like it, it even cooled my nose, my nose hair, it's got these tiny little icicles on them, and I was so hot, and I actually and I put it against my chest, and it cooled my whole body, and I thought, oh man, I don't want to put it against my body, I'm gonna make this thing lukewarm, and then I. I just, I put it up, I just drained it. I couldn't drink more than half because, you know, it basically is an endurance test of inter-agony, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh my, that's so good. Like my knees went weak. And of course, I, I actually need, this is not even a diet. I don't think they even had diet coke when I was a kid. But it, I, the sugar, the energy, the, like it just flowed into my body. And I could feel strength returning to my veins. And I, this, this column of like this growing icicle of deep dish refreshment was growing down in, in, into my belly and my whole spine turned into this frosted air conditioning glory of refreshment. 
Oh my god, <laughs> I had to wipe my mouth. Here. It's disgusting. Oh my god, I'm, I feel like Oddly I'm enough, having another drink now, but it's slightly less refreshing. Yeah, we don't do advertisements is... on the show stuff. What are you doing? No, no, this is, <laughs> this is like, I'm telling you my experience. This was my experience. It's like this is it's like a joyous moment. <laughs> In my youth, haven't you ever had something like that where you're just like, that is the perfect thing at the perfect time? And somebody could have said to me, like in that moment, this is how sad it was, because it was very, again, very rare for me to have pop growing up. But someone could have said to me at that time, oh, you could have this stinky old pop for a quarter and and it's coming from some dusty old school vending machine. It's been there. How long? I have for you. I have for you, my friend. Fresh Alps sweat water. It is water that has run down from the top of the Alps. Perfectly pure. Perfectly, I don't know why I said this an accent. Perfectly pure. Perfectly clear. And it's going to be slightly chilled. And in it will be a hologram of Jill St. John. And you can drink that. And it will be perfectly refreshing. I'll be like, forget it, man. That's just like, that's like llama spit for me. I just, that Coke, that glistening Coke, that is like what I, and I, I don't think I've ever had a better drink in my life. And uh, I've certainly been more thirsty in my life. Like when I went to visit my father when I was 16 in Africa, he took me on this hike that basically started in um, uh, at the edge of uh, the, the national park and ended up uh, in infinity. It was actually infinity. And we climbed like 3,000 feet in one day. I wasn't particularly fit at this point. I was going through a non-fit phase in my life. And I was so thirsty, and we didn't bring much water. And he's like, well, what you need to do is suck a stone and uh, um, Coke Brothers. Suck a stone, and that will produce more saliva, and that will quench your thirst. I'm like, what? <laughs> How can it quench? I'm producing this. I'm producing the liquid. How on earth can consuming the liquid that I myself am producing? I guess masturbation gives me a baby too, right? But um, I've just, by the way, <laughs> put something... <laughs> I just put a uh, subliminal thing in there for people. But um, so uh, that to me was like, now, that was not because there'd been all these commercials. I mean, that was just what I wanted at the time. So um, uh, it's really good. Uh, Coke is really good. It's why people drink it. It's really good. I'm not saying it's good for you. I know it cleans pennies and apparently uh, 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 polishes uh, Satan's fiery hand of death across the human landscape of ill health. But uh, I'm just saying that it's really good. Now, that wasn't because I saw a commercial. That's just like I did taste it. It was really good. Now, why did I ever first try a Coke? Well, if someone gave it to me. And uh, it is good. I'm sorry. Like it is. I, I, you know, I don't know if it's like sugar-based masochism. It's like, it's so good. It's like, because you're drinking that pop and it's like, I'm so thirsty and it's so painful. <laughs> it's hurting my throat, but the thirst, right? I mean, it, it basically, it's like, it's like a, um, it's like a cheesecake that just slaps you in the face repeatedly. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Gotta go in for <laughs> So good. <laughs> Let me try the creme brulee that pokes me in the eye uh, a la Three Stooges next. Uh, it's just one of these things. It's a very ambivalent but exciting and joyful thing to drink. So uh, anyway, I mean, I that's my, I'm that's very thirsty my now, commercial but... take. <laughs> um, I guess where I'm coming from, just to give you a little bit of a background, is in, I mean, obviously, we're we're a long way off to a free society, uh, in in a to where people would be less susceptible to these sort of uh, influences from a, either an advertisement or you know a design of a service or even uh, you know a pitch that someone might be giving about how phenomenal a coach is after playing soccer like you just did. Um, Plus, can I? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can I just can I just say say something? Sure. 
who do I blow to get a Coke at this point <laughs> in my life? I just need to know that because I'm willing to, uh, because I'll know I'll have something to take away the taste. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, that was good. Um, in the interim then, uh, before we get to this free society, how do I make sure that I walk the line properly in, in my approaches to marketing and, and business development? Because I, I really study these techniques a lot, and I, I find it interesting that some of them can be misused uh, in a way to actually manipulate people, but others can actually be used uh, ethically uh, to, to generate win-win situations. So I'm always trying to look at that um, to make sure that I'm staying on the side of ethics with, with the way that I conduct business. And at the same time, uh, what, what would be a solution for the people who are not yet, you know, coming to um, the self-knowledge of being able to uh, thwart these, these, manip uh, the, these, manip uh, sorry, manipulations as they see them. Uh, could there be, you know, more education about marketing or business for, for people to learn about these tricks that, that could be played on them? And, um, you know, is that, is no, that, well, hang on, but, but do you believe in the product that you are advertising? Uh, yes. yes. Then all's fair in love and war, baby. <laughs> Uh, well, Look, you're talking about that. a guy who makes dick-sucking jokes on a philosophy show, right? You're talking to a guy who takes off his shirt and imitates a supermodel knocking on a guy's door to have sex. I mean, you're not talking to the most refined uh, uh, Noam Chomsky-style zombie breath of truth in your ear guy. I mean, I will do anything to get people interested in philosophy. I will pull any string I can think of. I will do anything ridiculous uh, that, that I can think of. I mean, I've been attacked by Grumpy Cat in a show about Obamacare. I mean, I will, I will do anything to, to get people interested in philosophy because I really believe in the product. I really believe in what we're doing and what, what we're having as a conversation here. And because I hugely believe in it, by hook or by crook, using any tool that I can think of, I mean, I won't lie to people or anything like that, but I've been using any tool of engagement that I can conceivably imagine, I will try and drag people into this show. And we get, you know, three plus million show downloads and views a month which is great. And you know, I assume that's going up over time. And, and I, you know, this has been, I think, the biggest philosophy bomb that's landed on the planet uh, since the beginning of philosophy. And again, mostly because of the technology and, you know, people like you who call them with great questions. But uh, so for me, you know, <laughs> what is the ethical approach? I don't care. I will get people interested in philosophy no matter what. Uh, and I, you know, bad publicity is, <laughs> I don't care what you say about me, just spell my name right. I don't care what you care about the show, say about the show, just spell its name right and f give people the um, the URL. So I believe so strongly and so foundationally in this show that I will go and, uh, as people characterize it, beg for money. And why will I beg for money? So that I can continue to do these shows and hopefully do them better. I'm constantly trying to move the uh, goalpost of what I'm willing to do and what I'm willing to talk about. Uh, we talk about issues of, of race and gender and family that other people go within 20 miles and end up as nuclear shadows on politically correct walls. And we, I would do all of that because I want the show to be relevant. I want it to be useful. I want it to be actionable. I want it to be compelling. I want it to be interesting because people have got, you know, the fact that there's an internet out here means that I get to talk to you, but it means every other person in the universe can start a show as well. And so it's great that we have this communication avenue, but Lord knows it can get incredibly cluttered with every other sentient being in the known universe trying to get your attention as well. So 
from my standpoint, believe in your product, believe in what you're producing, believe in what you're creating, believe in the value that you're bringing to the world. And after that, all's fair in love and war. But you won't lie, though. You, you said that you wouldn't be dishonest. And I think that's, you know, one of those lines where, um, you know, people would have to say, well, anything beyond this line of dishonesty as a marketing technique, even if I do believe in my own product, because I know people who believe in their product and will still use dishonest techniques to market it and to sell it. Um, or, or maybe that speaks to actually how much they actually believe in their own product if <laughs> but, they have to lie about it. But You don't need to call into a philosophy show to say, should I lie? <laughs> True. <laughs> I mean, that there are complicated ethical issues in the world. I don't think should I lie is one of them, right, Justin? I get that. Um, and, and no, I, I agree with you. I guess I, I am aware of very subtle techniques that I have a hard time even identifying whether or not it would be construed as a lie in terms of positioning a product or a service and, and marketing that can uh, either gain more sales, gain more revenue out of the customers, still deliver a product that they want in the first place. But, um, but no, but all you can get them to do is try your product. You're well, not, you're not this, this controlling them forever. There. Like there was no amount of advertising that was going to make my friend buy Mentos. Well, let's not even look at Again. advertising. I mean, like, like beyond that, like if someone's already in a restaurant and making decisions about what they want to order, there are things that people can list on a menu. Um, that would change their decision making about what they order, even if they wasn't, even if they weren't intending to order those foods when they first stepped into that restaurant. And it's not about um, necessarily just the words on the page that are, you know, describing the food. It's oh no, no I get it. I was a, I was a waiter, and I was a waiter at a pretty high end restaurant, and we had this dessert called a profiterole. And I would say to people, uh, hey, you know, we got this dessert called the profiterole. Let me just tell you about it because it's really great. We get this light, fluffy French pastry that's so light it could almost float. <laughs> it's it's like almost like a dandelion fluff of like pure Parisian sugary pasty goodness. And then we take freshly made uh, scooped vanilla ice cream. We put that in. We put another layer of the pastry on top. Another, not too much, a little bit of ice cream, perfectly flavored, just the right amount of vanilla. And then we put on the top another light, fluffy, French-style Parisian locally baked pastry roll uh, that's like, you know, like, uh, it's like brioche. It's like uh, what, uh, what, uh, uh, um, <laughs> what, uh, uh, that, that queen uh, was saying, oh, let them eat cake. And Marie Antoinette was saying, oh, let them eat cake. It's brioche. It's a kind of sweet French uh, um, pastry. And then we put uh, this chocolate sauce. Now, not the kind of chocolate sauce you're getting from that Hershey's like, jar or the, the little squeeze. Like, did we make this in-house? Is this chocolate sauce uh, three strawberries, and if you want, if you want, if you're feeling extravagant, like that's not extravagant enough, we've got this thing where we put also some raspberry sauce. And again, like real raspberry squished uh, between the breasts of Cuban women. Uh, it is a raspberry sauce, and the whole thing comes to you, and don't order it for yourself because it's big enough to share. Uh, this will be a dessert that will uh, keep you up, and like you'll wake up in the middle of the night and you'll say, my life is incomplete because I'm not currently eating this dessert. I'm hesitant to offer it to you because it is so good that you will never even want candy again because it simply won't be as good as this dessert. Now, is that encouraging someone to buy a dessert? Oh, sure it is. Did I believe in it? Absolutely. Did I hope they wouldn't finish it? Yes, because at that time, I had no pride in my food. <laughs> Please don't finish this. I'd go up to people, are you done? Are you done? How about now? Are you done? <laughs> are you done? And um, I know I tried it. Like It was a fantastic dessert. And um, yeah, am I encouraging people to buy it? Yes. Does that add to the restaurant's profits and my tip to some degree? Yes. But they can always say no.
I just, I, and I mean, if you go for a job interview, don't you put a suit on? Well, it depends on the establishment, but, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. you, if you go for a job interview for some sort of professional job, you put on a suit. Is that manipulative? Uh, no, because the, the, the truth is if you wear the opposite of what, of what, uh, would work for that place, their, their psychology would suggest that you're less qualified just based on what you're wearing. Um, although you couldn't factually draw that conclusion other than knowing what's appropriate or not. Right. Well, I mean, if it was a job where you didn't interact with anyone, some sort of backroom job, not wearing a suit. Right. Uh, I guess it, I, I guess that comes down to context. I mean, there is there is a ton of research out there from social psychology about what you wear to certain situations and how that construes you as a, as an authority figure, having any credibility, yep. integrity, and so on. Um, so, I mean, I you know I I don't want to get overly complicated about this stuff, but if you've got a product you're passionate about, then don't lie, but encourage people as strongly as you can to try your product. And if they like it, then they like it, you know, and, and if the person I'll say to them, I said, look, if you don't like the dessert, send it back. We won't even charge you because right. it never happened. This dessert was fantastic. <laughs> and everything I said about the dessert was true. And um, and people were like, thank you so much for thank you. That was like that was like the best dessert I've ever had. Thank you so much for suggesting it. I would never have had it. And now I've had it. And I said, and now all other desserts are going to be a disappointment. So you thank me, but at the same time, you don't thank me, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I believed in the desserts. Uh, I obviously benefited to some degree from selling the desserts. But I wanted people to try this dessert. It's so good. It's like when you have a great album. You're like, put on these headphones, listen to this song. It's incredible. Uh, and um, even if you're not selling the album, if you are, right, fine, right? But if you believe in it, let your passion shine. Let... Uh, you know, again, do everything that's ethical to get people to try this product. I mean, it's, you know, I bet you people still remember that dessert from 30 years ago when I was <laughs> selling it. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, I I agree with you there, and I, I guess the line is really just honesty and, and not uh, lying uh, in the sales approach. I guess I'm a little bit confused as to why I may have gotten caught up on that in the first place as I learn about these uh subjects and, and tricks of, of marketing and whatnot, but that could be a conversation for another time, perhaps. Um, yeah, I would imagine that because some like politicians use this stuff uh, oh, yeah. and there are great susceptibilities in the population. Like when I'm at a play center, uh, I, I'm usually the guy who gets games going with all the kids because just, you know, that tidal wave of kid energy when everyone's playing together can be hugely fun. And, you know, I, I can, but I can tell in less than a second, which kids have dads and which kids don't. I mean, you just, you know, mm -hmm. you just, and I won't sort of get into the hows and whys, but you just know. Now, you don't want to ever misuse that power. You don't ever want to use that power in any negative way whatsoever. So you're aware that there's a power in the world, which is your study of marketing and psychology and, and salesmanship and so on. And you don't want to use that for negative and nefarious ends. And there are lots of people who do, right? Politicians will attempt to sell you uh, on this uh, stuff. Uh, and um, uh, you, you want to make sure you're not in that, in that crew, right? But it has a lot to do with, like, manipulation to get people to act against their own self-interest is not a good thing, right? On the other hand, you, what we would call manipulation to get people to act in their own self-interest you know, again, all's fair in love and war. I use whatever the enemy uses, right? I don't bring I don't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? I use whatever the enemy uses, but but you know, with the caveat that philosophy is 
much better than anything they're putting out. In it's the opposite in, in most cases. And um, uh, and it, I'm teaching them critical thinking, which means that they're going to outgrow anything. So are you going to say? Uh, is it fair to assume that you know another person's self-interest, though? Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to influence people to make healthier decisions, better decisions by my standards and perhaps by your standards. And, you know, everyone has different standards for this. So then is is that fair or would it still be construed as a uh, a coercive persuasion or a manipulation if, you know, somebody says, no, I actually did want to eat that cake. Why did you influence me to make a healthier decision when I actually wanted that cake in the first place or something like that? Um, that feels like a little bit of a fuzzy area for me because you're not lying to them and you think you're acting in their best interest, but everyone has their own goalposts for that. Um, I don't know. Do you have any th uh, thoughts on that? Well, I don't, I don't know what is going to define someone's self-interest, but I do believe that critical thinking is better than irrational thinking. Obviously, that's the deal, right, <laughs> with being a philosopher. And uh, I think that exposing people to accurate information and critical thinking principles uh, is and critical thinking examples is for the better for sure i mean that's that's the gig right that's that's the deal of being a philosopher so i don't know what's better for people in terms of you know should they like jazz or blues but i do know that you know i, I may not know exactly how everyone in the world should eat but i'm pretty sure they shouldn't be eating sand and dark shit right, right. so um that's you know i don't know what they should do positively but i know what they should avoid which is sort of the non-aggression principle thing, right? And so you would say that it's, or it sounds like you're saying that it that it is fair to use uh, these strategies and this understanding of the brain to guide people's decisions to something that would be, I guess, as a majority construed as a better option uh, for society, or or no? Um, I'm maybe I'm, on, I'm misunderstanding you. Um, no, no, but but my whole my whole point as a philosopher is to remove from people's mind justifications for those who think that they do know what is positively better for other people. Because that's taxation, that's the welfare state, that's the military-industrial complex, that's the whole governmental structure, as is the religious structure, is saying, I know what is better for you than you do yourself, right? That's the non-aggression principle that's don't use force against others. It doesn't, right? Right. I mean, I feel like I know of examples of companies that can use... Um, to that that can use these strategies though to guide people towards decisions that maybe can be construed as better and it's not necessarily uh you know coercion from the state or persuasion from a from a politician um for instance uh when you're you know first signing up as a, a for a new company and perhaps they offer you a savings uh you know 401k options and things like that they've done a lot of research into what are people's average rates of savings based on the the preset default that you're exposed to on the form. If it's not checked off automatically that says, yes, I want to, you know, play with the 401k program at this company, people tend to not save at all and they don't join the program for several years. Whereas you can actually just have the checkbox uh, on by default and people all of a sudden 90% of the new hires are joining the 401k program from, from day one. And, you know, it's well, it's and then if you believe say, in the 401k program, then, you know, you can, you know, if you if you tell them about it in the hiring policy, in the hiring, uh, I assume you have some sort of uh, orientation, right? And you tell them about that. But, mm -hmm. you know, if, if people are that passive that a checkbox, they'll just do whatever the checkbox says, then <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't, th I don't think that the big problem <laughs> in their life is whether that box is checked or not. Right. So then 
maybe the bigger question is, is how do we, and I think you hit it, you know, in the beginning of, of, you know, having better relationships with the, with, with the family and, and, and connections to emotions and, and real time relationships and whatnot has people more aware of this, of this, you know, default pattern to where they can say, no, hold on a minute. I actually want to make a critical decision here rather than just going with whatever's on the page in front of me. Uh, so I, I, if, if that's where you're coming from, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. Would you say that it's, it's, a it's the right of the company to really set any of their own defaults, to really set any of their own uh, environment, especially if they believe in the product, but you know, that it's, it then but you don't, only becomes... Justin, sort of, you don't need to, you keep overcomplicating things, so you don't need to ask me these questions. Is it an initiation of the use of force to have a default checklist, a check, uh, to have something default checked? I guess not, no. No, no, it's not, right? I mean, so... What about... Uh, and I, I'm sorry if I'm moving the goalpost. I'm not trying to. I, I, I feel like there's so many different avenues for this, for, for the applications of this research that, in some ways, it can actually play with people's emotions uh, from a from the perception of the business uh, and and how the c- customer perceives the service that they're being offered. And you know, if in that case, is it okay for a marketing or a or a, uh, a business design to uh, you know, study the way that they can modify people's emotions so that they actually feel like they want the company or the service of the business more than perhaps they did if they weren't uh, influenced to have their emotions changed. And I mean, I, I feel like I'm going around in circles. I, I do apologize. No, look, I mean, of course, it's all is fair. Okay. You're not initiating the use of force and you want people to use your product. Now, if your product sucks then no amount of marketing is going to make it unsuck, right? Okay. Right. It's, it's, I mean, all, again, all it can do is get people to try the product for the first time. Right. And these days when you have, like, don't worry about, I mean, these days when you have, like, reviews of, of companies and products and, and everything right there on the website, I mean, it's really hard to get away with crappy stuff these days. I mean, it was easier before, right? Mm-hmm. But it's hard to uh, it's hard to get away with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, all's fair. I mean, you can do whatever. Let me let me give an example. All right, so I can't find the exact one that I'm looking for, but there's this guy called Justin Trudeau, who's a Canadian politician, who's the son of uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was a <laughs> high foreheaded, weaselled faced husband of Margaret Trudeau, who apparently hung out quite intimately with the Rolling Stones. Anyway, he's this dewy-eyed, puppy-dog, tousle-haired fella who's very good. He's good-looking. Certainly, you know, politics is usually showbiz for ugly people, but he's a really good-looking guy, right? And this is what's on Amazon as the, um, as the pitch for his, his book called, uh, called Common Ground. Mike, could you give me the piano, please? Justin Trudeau's candid memoir will reveal to its readers the experiences that have shaped him over the course of his life and show how his passion for Canada and its people took root. Covering the years from his childhood at 24 Sussex to his McGill days during the tumultuous time of the Charlottetown Accord to his first campaign in Papineau to his role as liberal leader today, the book will capture the foundational moments that have formed the man we have come to know and informed his vision for the future of Canada. Filled with anecdotes, personal reflections, and never-before-seen photographs from his own collection, 
Mr. Trudeau's memoir will show how the events of his life have led him to this moment and prepared him for the future. Now, Justin, is that geared to men or women? Um, I can't distinguish that. Well, I'm telling, you, I'm telling you, as a guy who was director of marketing, that is geared entirely towards women. In fact, if women don't climax upon that <laughs> reading, they need to go and see a, 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 gyneco- a gynecologist. Yeah. M- okay. Candid. First of all, candid is a woman no. like it's it's like the word pampering. So for women, would you like an in-home pampering? For men, it's like, what are you going to rub shit in my body? No, thank you. <laughs> Strangers in my house to rub shit into my body. For women, it's like, ooh, in-home pampering. I'm purring already, right? Candid memoir. So candid is like, he's going to tell you secrets, ladies. And of course, you know, a lot of female friendships are not secrets, right? Secret. <clears throat> the experiences that have shaped him over the course of his life. I mean, can you, can you imagine John Locke, like the second treatise on government? On the back, it says, this is a candid memoir from John Locke that will reveal to its readers the experiences that have shaped him over the course of his life. And it's like, what? No, just give me your damn arguments. This is a book on politics. He's a politician. Give me your arguments. But it's no experiences that have shaped him and so on, right? Childhood at 24 This is all like, it's all women's stuff. It's all women's stuff. Capture the foundational moments that have formed the man. It's like, What? Are you saying he's just like a pinball bouncing off his experiences that have formed him like the way a potter forms a clay? I don't want to know. I want to know what the guy thinks. What's his facts? What's his reason? What's his evidence? No, 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 no. We want a book filled with anecdotes, personal reflections, and never-before-seen photographs from his own collection. So that's the voyeuristic element of women. Oh, we get to see his pictures. That's cool. I wonder what he looked like as a baby. Have you ever looked at a thinker and said, well, I don't know. I could listen to his arguments, but I also wonder what he looked like as a baby, right? Like This is just women stuff. And this isn't even the worst one. The worst one I saw was in McLean somewhere. I can't find it right now. But, oh, man, it's brutal. It's brutal. And uh, so this is, this is, it's manipulative as hell. Yeah. I can't, like, I can't imagine any, like, heterosexual male who would respond to this kind of stuff. But for women, this is like catnip. And again, not all women and so on, right? But it's like anecdotes and personal reflections. It's like, man, if you want all my tax money, I want more than you than fucking anecdotes and personal reflections. And I don't care what you look like as a baby. Stop spending my money. So, I don't know. It's a memoir. It's a candid memoir. It's like... I don't give a shit what your candid experiences were that shaped you. Will you stop spending all my money? Will you stop putting my children into debt? Will you stop growing the size and power of the state? Will you stop being so pretty so that people can't think straight when you're talking about your personal fucking anecdotes and memoirs? Give me some facts. Give me some arguments. Give me a little bit of philosophy. A tiny shred of critical thinking. I don't care which personal experiences shaped your fucking vision. As long as your vision doesn't include massive tax increases on me, I'm okay. Anyway, I couldn't get over the piano in the beginning, so I'm I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. And well, look, I mean, oh, uh, you sound like a very moral, a morally sensitive person, perhaps a little oversensitive, but that's you know perhaps a topic for another time. But uh, no, believe in your product, and then move move mountains to get it into the hands of people. Yeah. That that's all that matters, right? Believe in your product and move mountains to get it into the hands of people. And um, that's loyalty to to your product. If you don't believe in your product, keep moving until you find one or make someone, uh, make a product that you can believe in. But um, 
that that is uh, important. Once you've got the right product and you believe in the importance of getting it to people, then you move heaven and earth to yeah. get it. Don't lie. But yeah, everything else is is fair game as far as I'm concerned. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. Just to share part of my product that I want to work on is is something to educate people to reveal this kind of marketing bullshit that people are, you know, falling victim to. So I guess I was, uh, the reason for the question was really to make sure that I had uh, my definitions rights and my understanding of, of my studies uh, in terms of how they fall on the ethical and the moral uh, spectrums. So I really appreciate your feedback and uh, it's definitely going to help uh, guide me as well, I you can. I mean, but I mean, I, again, I don't think that that marketing in magazines and TVs is the big problem. You know, one big problem is, you know, makeup on women. I mean, have you seen the movie Interstellar? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. Here's the here's my pitch for Interstellar. Are you ready? No. We are going to take you on a journey. And we're going to take you on a journey, my friends, to the edge of the known universe. At the edge of this known universe, at a time where gravity flows backwards and time stretches to infinity, the laws of physics reverse themselves so much that Anne Hathaway looks like an ordinary human being. That is my pitch for Interstellar. If you ever get a chance to watch that movie, Anne Hathaway, who is one of these weirdly dewy-eyed, huge... She looks like an electrified baby. Like, she, she's in this movie without makeup, and she looks like an ordinary human being. Like, it's astounding, right? It's, it's astonishing. I mean, Matthew McConaughey looks young until he cries, and then he looks like an ancient, mummified <laughs> Chinese head. But uh, no, it's true. Uh, it's um, uh, it's weird. Just try looking at these. Or, or if you want to watch a, a movie where a woman looks like a normal human being, watch the movie Wild about uh, this woman who hiked um, the Pacific Coast Trail, I think it's called. It took her like three months and her toenails fell off and stuff. And there's Reese Witherspoon looking like a regular, honest to God, normal human being. And... It's so funny. It's such a courageous role. It's so courageous. They're going without makeup. And it's like, what? <laughs> Nobody's such a courageous movie. He took his shirt off. It's like, no, that's just what he looks like. But, um, and, and just do this for, for shits and giggles. I mean, just there's, there's tons of, this is the women without makeup. You know, the before and after makeup stuff, right? I was showing this to my daughter the other day because I want her to understand that the cyborgs she see on television have about as much relationship to real women and real human beings as fleshlight does to real vaginas. Don't ask me how I know that. Don't don't keep asking me. Wait, sorry, that was my conscience. That wasn't the audience. Anyway, but um, it's really important. The, 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 the amount of advertising that goes on on television is less important to me than the amount of obfuscation that goes on um, on, on women's faces. And that really is... Astonishing, astonishing, and and yes, they have pores. You know, high def reveals that these women are not shellacked. Okay, well, one exception: the woman who plays the lead on Bones. She's got this eerie skin that is more akin to vertically engineered cream than it is to actual human epidermis. But um, it is. Uh, I've heard these these things where men say, first date, first date should be swimming, <laughs> so that you can see what she looks like." 
without makeup. And I remember seeing the beginning of some movie. I don't think I watched it all the way through. But uh, Anna Faris plays this woman who wakes up, uh, sneaks out of bed, puts on her makeup because she's a guy sleeping with her and comes back and then wakes up like this is how she just looks in the morning. And uh, it's kind of weird and kind of eerie. Watched Ann Coulter on TV the other day. I don't know what kind of weird interstellar Arkansas ditch caterpillar that woman puts on her upper eyelids, but dear Lord in heaven. I mean, it's like wearing two sunshades. It's like she's got two little Vegas dealers over her eyeballs. I mean, uh, you strike a match off those things and set fire to the entire studio. Uh, it's just weird. Uh, but uh, I think that stuff is kind of kind of creepy. Uh, and uh, I think it would be behoove women to um, focus a little bit less on their looks and focus a little bit more on, um, you know, say virtue and reliability, honesty, integrity, which, you know, a lot of women have and so on, but, uh, picking up a woman's magazines, we got this woman's magazine. I, we get it delivered to the house. I don't know why, but we do. And you flip through it and it's like, here's another woman who was born pretty. Here's another woman who was born pretty. This woman was born with great hair. This woman has big boobs. This woman has ridiculously long eyelashes that came about naturally. Uh, this woman, it's like spider legs having orgasms underneath their eyebrows. <laughs> and, and, and this woman has really long legs. And this woman, well, this woman that we say will make you cellulite free if you use this cream, she's actually a 14-year-old gymnast, so not to, to worry about that. But, oh, my God, uh, the, the amount of, like, hair, you can bullshit the world and we'll show you how. Give us money and we'll allow you to bullshit the world. You can look older if you're younger. You can look younger if you're older. <laughs> it's like this 79-year-old grandma looks like she's 40. And it's like, no, she doesn't. She looks like somebody took her entire head skin of faceness and tied a giant Gordian knot behind her head. And now she can barely move and can't smile and can't blink. She's like the, <laughs> the woman who plays the... Um, there's this uh, show called um, State of Affairs, and there's this black woman who plays uh, the president. I swear to God, she has no facial expressions whatsoever. I know black don't crack, but I think she's got Botox to the point where she looks like an elephant's knee and has about the same acting ability or acting range of expression. Bemused resignation. <laughs> Anger. <laughs> Lust. <laughs> Does anything move up there? No. <laughs> it's like whole ventriloquist. Some of these actresses have become like ventriloquist acts. It's like, how can you have those words without your lips even moving? Um, like they got stuck in a pool drain, like that old joke from uh, First Wives, or Second Wives Club. First Wives Club? Yeah, First Wives Club. So, you know, as far as, you know, your sensitivity towards marketing goes, I think it would be fascinating. It was an old Batman movie where... Uh, I can't remember why, but makeup becomes dangerous. And you see all of these these anchors on TV. They can't, like their hair's all bushy and they've got pimples and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, that's, uh, it would be great. I mean, listen, I'm just, uh, um, I, I, I have this ridiculously high def camera at 60 frames a second. It's like, I did not really understand the degree to which I look like a talking speckled hen egg uh, because of the, the spots, freckles I've always had. Uh, in my life. I don't notice that. I take a picture with some old Polaroid and I look like uh, Brad Pitt. You know, I, I, I get a high def camera and suddenly I look like the crypt, crypt keeper with leprosy. It's just the way it works. But I know that people are actually listening to the quality of the show rather than going, wow, that egg, I'd hit that. That's speckly shit. That means he's good in bed. You know all about that stuff, don't you? It's like, no, hey, high def and every time, I don't know, every time I pause, I look angry or stoned. I just really wanted to point that out. Try it. Pause <laughs> one of my videos. Angry or stoned. That's basically the sum total. Or it's an O face. But that's a little bit more rare. So there's lots of things to worry about. You know, politicians, makeup. I mean, if, if 
<laughs> if men rented cars and suits to make themselves look much richer uh, every single day, and there were magazines, how to fake wealth for the ladies, how to fake having more resources than you have for the ladies. Here's a fake six pack. You know, here's something that you can get that you can tie. Here's some Norgahide horsehair that you can lash and tie around your so that you squish in your man belly. You know, here's how to fake hair for the ladies. Here's how to fake you. Here's how to fake that you have a nice car. Here's how to fake that you're interested in her. Use this expression when she's talking to pretend that you're interested. Like if, if everything in every single conceivable men's magazine was here's how to bullshit and lie and manipulate women women would be like well that's shitty isn't it <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you guys to the point where you can't even get anything straight where you're showing up looking like some giant vat of cream landed in some giant vat of money and uh, you were supposed to actually believe this. I mean, here's how to fake that you have any assets whatsoever. You may live in a shoebox, but here's how to make her make it look like you're living in some Bel Air condo. And it's like if every single thing in men's magazines was how to lie to women, oh my God, women would be looking at men going like, what is the matter with you? Why can't you just tell the truth? Why? I mean, it's just, it's just madness. What the hell is wrong? And so this men look at these, at least men with any discernment, we look at these magazines, you go to the grocery store, look at these magazines, it's like, here's how to lie to men. <laughs> lie to men. Fake stuff with men. Your nails aren't big enough. Here's, you need nails that allows you to gouge out the back of Tutankhamun's brainstem. If you, if you go in through the eyeballs, that's what you like. You need nails that you can like climb trees and dig for roots and berries and peel carrots from four feet away. That's the kinds of nails you need. So nails that if you fall off a building, you can flap and achieve some semi semblance of air motion. Those are the nails you need. Longer lashes. You need longer lashes. You need you need neoteny style shoes that make you so wobbly that men feel like pedophiles for trying to pick you up. Oh, are you having trouble walking there, honey? Because you're three or two? Wow, you're sexy. <laughs> Here's how to make your eyeballs look huge, like you're 12. Or that girl from Modern Family. <laughs> or Anne Hathaway. Whether you're at the edge of the universe or not, that woman is permanently startled. I don't know if she's got little toothpicks in there or what. But it's just bizarre. I mean, because this is what it looks like. Women's media as a whole is... <laughs> Here's how to lie to men. <laughs> Get yourself some spanks. Don't do any sit-ups. Get yourself some spanks. Uh, here's how to lie to men and here's how to injure yourself with the occasional exercise routine that's far too difficult and will never stick. But it's just lie, lie, lie. Manipulate, manipulate. Lie, lie, lie. Fool them, fool them, fool them. It's like, what the hell is wrong with you women that you can't just be who you are and think that men might possibly like you for looking like you, right? <laughs> looking like you. It's like, I don't know. We did just have a baby. That baby is adorable. But without makeup, on the baby, I don't think we're going to keep it. I mean, really, it's just not cute enough. Um, <laughs> and so hairless. Can we get uh, hair transplants, my armpit hair to that baby's forehead? Because it just looks all kind of like Donald Trump in a windstorm over there. I mean, just stop lying. Stop being addicted to this lying to men at all times. Fake them. Fake boobs. <laughs> That's not your real hair. That's not your real boobs. Black women's hair doesn't look like that. It doesn't. I was there in the 70s. I saw afros so big that the woman had to take a run at anything that wasn't a double door propped open. <sighs> anyway. No, that's not your real hair color. Come on. You're over 40. If there's no gray in there, it's bullshit. Bullshit. Lies. 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 All of it lies. Anyway. And, and, and the other thing, too, is that women, oh, man, 
Women have the temerity to be upset with pickup artists. They're manipulative. <laughs> really? Really? Oh, my God. They're manipulative. You mean they're not being forthright and honest about who they are and what they look like and what resources and assets? Sometimes they try to pretend that they have more money than they do. Sometimes you all try to pretend that you're a little less road-worn than you actually are. I mean, some women is like, I've never seen the sun. This is what an eight-year-old vampire looks like. It's like, nope, that's what polyfiller looks like. The wall may look smooth, but the house is about to fall down. You're not fooling anyone with that stuff. And uh, let's not even get started. It's like, I don't, if you were actually having an orgasm in front of me, your lips would not be that red, right? The only time that your lips should look that red is if you have been French kissing somebody who just had a tooth removed. That is the only way that your lips should ever look that red. That is not a human color. I don't like colors not found in nature in my food or on my women. That is not a natural color. There is no red in the world that is like that unless you're looking at the esophagus of a vampire in full feed mode. So it's just, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe if you just bit off Evander Holyfield's ear, that would be the color of your lips. But I'm not sure that Mike Tyson and lipstick is an image anybody uh, want us to have. Um, maybe, maybe if you are very much into fava beans with a, uh, a white wine sauce, uh, you would have lips of that particular color. But unless you're actually bleeding out from the gums, this should not be your, your color. And there's no way that anybody who's not punched uh, currently should have eyes, uh, even remotely, that kind of black violety color that goes on there. It's just bizarre. And yes, 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 eyebrows can be a little bit large. It's okay. If you have these weird little laser eyebrows, nature put eyebrows there for one reason, to make sweat not go into your eyeballs. If you have eyebrows like that, you're basically taking a shower with your mouth open, trying not to drink anything. So anyway, I could uh, go on and on, but uh, <laughs> that may be stuff to focus on a little more than uh, the odd uh, little bit of uh, manipulation that goes on ab advertising. Well, yeah, and I'll, I mean, we can stop it here, um, but it, it it does go beyond advertising. I think that as much manipulation and lying as might be happening between the, the two genders, I think it happens a lot in business too, and I... I think that bringing that to light for some people could be really beneficial for their uh, experiences at their careers and their places of work and uh, to avoid such manipulations and, and abusive uh, powers of either management or other employees and so on, and even customers. So I, I ultimately, I want to bring more of all of that to light. And, and that's just kind of where I, that's my niche. That's my focus. And I mean, I enjoy it. So that's what I'd like to share more of. I would not like a... Um... A grocer who was selling eggs and changed the best buy date. Right. And that's basically what makeup and all this body manipulation and hair dye and crap like that does. It's okay. like, I don't care if you look younger on the outside, your eggs ain't any younger, and that's what it's all about. Right. All right. Thank, um, you, time, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And let's do one last caller. All right, Seth, before we get to the next call, I just, I, I want to do something real quick, okay? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a Diet Pepsi I'm opening. Mm. Oh, God. All right, that's it. I'm going to shove an entire profiterole <laughs> up my ass on camera. <laughs> Here we go. Ooh, so good. 
All right, up next is Andrew. Andrew wrote in and said, I've been listening for about two years, and I find that while much of the advice is empirically based, logical, and sound, most people, at least that I've come in contact with, fall, quote-unquote, miserably short of the implied standards of character and behavior that are characteristic of emotionally beneficial relationships. I'm beginning to feel that the only true, quote-unquote, healthy relationships tend to be transactional, and for a matter of, for a number of reasons, most fall into the realm of quote-unquote abuse to varying degrees. For lack of a better term, do you recommend any particular methodology for cultivating, nurturing, protecting, and sustaining human relationships? Or are people committed to self-knowledge and self-respect left to high turnover in relationships? Well, just honesty. I mean, with all of the complexity that that involves, I mean, just just be honest uh, with, with people. Uh, honesty is one of these great positive and negative vibe machines in that it will draw honest people to you and drive dishonest people away from you. Dishonest people have so much to hide that if they come across someone who's frank and curious, they tend to uh, to flee, right? And so I think just uh, having a robust commitment to um, context-appropriate levels of honesty is uh, I think that, the, and I, I know that that's a very short answer to a very complicated question, but I think if you sort of, as I try to do, I mean, sort of stop in your life and say, am I being honest with this person? I'm being honest with this person. Is there anything that I could have added or anything that I'm leaving out? Can I be honest with this person? And you'd be surprised, at least I am, the, the gap can be, you know, there's a lot of filters that go on in human relationships. And, you know, are all of them bad? Probably not. But there are appropriate contextual helpful facts that we either keep from people, uh, avoid, or give in a distorted fashion. And um, I think just having that continued commitment to honesty is uh, the best way that I know of to try to keep relationships uh, honest and, and <laughs> to keep them honest. Be honest to keep your relationships honest. Hey, at least there's nothing tautological about that one. But it keeps them alive. It keeps them vibrant. Um, because uh, honesty will always bring new insights and new insights give you more stuff to be honest and curious about. Hmm. I guess this is a somewhat interesting perspective. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> oh, hopefully the somewhat isn't too much of a condemnation. but uh, <laughs> Not at all, Steph. Not at all. Um, I guess you'll acknowledge, too, that honesty can be very scary for a lot of people at times, correct? <laughs> terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, because we're punished for honesty. I mean, if, you, if your teacher is boring when you're in grade school and you say, the teacher, I'm really bored. I'm really bored right now. <laughs> I find you very boring. Right? If you, say, if you say to your math teacher who's teaching you the opposite angle theorem or the triangle inequation triangle inequality relation, not the triangle inequality theorem, because the acronym for that just makes us giggle. <laughs> but um, if you say, well, what is the relevance of this to, uh, to my life? Um, or, you know, if you're bored around a family dinner table and you say, I'm bored. And my daughter said, we were talking about something this evening. My daughter said, I'm bored with this conversation. Like, okay, well, <laughs> let's uh, figure out something that can be more interesting to all of us, right? It's perfectly valid. She's allowed to be bored. And... Um, so we unstrapped the nine tablets we had uh, affixed to her eyeballs and uh, you know, switched it to something else. But um, 
I mean, to what degree are we allowed to be honest? You know, if, if God is all powerful, why is there evil? Why is there a devil? Uh, why does God give the devil dominion over us? Uh, if God knows what we're going to do because he's all knowing, how can he blame us for something he knows that we're going to do? I mean, these are all basic questions that kids have. I had them, you had them, everyone has them. How often <clears throat> are they allowed to be, um, to be questioned? Right. I mean, uh, in in Islam, uh, the the compulsion in the realm of religion is forbidden. So why is the why is there a death penalty for apostasy? Right. I mean, this is uh, all reasonable questions. And what happens is almost no kids ever ask them because they know they know they know. See, honesty is a virtue that is only a virtue when those in authority have something that they want you to tell them. Right. When you have information then honesty, when you have information they want, then honesty is a virtue. And when you have information they don't want, then diplomacy or tact is a virtue, right? In other words, lying is a virtue when the truth is upsetting to them, and honesty is a virtue when lying is upsetting to them. You know, it's the old thing that, that change in society benefits some people, and harms other people, and all the people it benefits call it progress, and all the people um, who it doesn't benefit call it disruptive, and they all attach all this moral crap to all of this stuff, but it's just, you know, does it benefit my interest or harm it? Let's recloak it in philosophy so that I don't appear too obviously selfish. And uh, yeah, we just had a winners and losers podcast that just got uh, released. What's the number of it, Mike? Oh, don't know off the top of my head, but we're nearing 3,000 at this point. <laughs> Yeah, somewhere up around the, I remember the, I think I did, I, re, I recorded the first, like the intro to the one when I, I laughed and said it was 183 shows because that just seemed like a lot. 2,948 <laughs> winners and losers. 2,948. 3,000 is going to be a, a whiny donation pitch, right? Guys, <laughs> guys, freedomainradio.com slash donate. Come on, guys. Oh, it's like we had this, um, sorry, slight tangent. I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was younger. And um, I mean, we, we were all very serious at the beginning. And, and then as things move forward, sometimes it became pretty funny. And we would it would be a, more of a comedy fest evening. And I was far from the funniest person in that group. I mean, there were some wickedly funny people in that group. And um, we, we had this guy who, you know, the, the funny bone was just like, like an alien organism in his body. I think he's, if you put a funny bone in the guy's body, uh, it would have, re his body would have reacted to it like a foreign object. It would have, like, it would have just had some allergic reaction to it. So anytime there was jokes, he'd be like, guys, guys, get serious. Let's get serious. We're here to play. And it's like, what? <laughs> Let's get serious. We're here to play. Um, anyway. So yeah, I'm going to try and do that guy's voice. Guys, <laughs> guys. Give me some money. <laughs> the Dungeons and Dragons podcast is 2,933 as well. I'll point that out. I, I do have one, right? Yep. Uh, really yeah, yeah, I did it. I did a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. And uh, it's only a matter of time until I introduce Izzy to Dungeons and Dragons, which was a hugely great influence in my life. Because it's really hard to, to get to know Satan without the portal spells from Dungeons and Dragons. So anyway, let's get back to, back to the caller. Um, but yeah, just honesty is terrifying for people um, because in general we're punished for any emotional authenticity as children. 
And uh, so we, 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 we're aversive, right? We're, we're trained to be aversive to those things. Yeah, I agree with that 110% if that's possible. Um, but given that, given that <laughs> that's the general state of affairs, how does a person pursuing self-knowledge then cultivate good relationships? Because I've, I've listened to your show for quite some time. And, you know, you give what I consider to be very good advice in setting standards for your relationships. You know, I've heard you talk to callers who were, whether dating someone, close friends with people who are treating them in a less than loving and respectful manner to, you know, as you mentioned earlier in this call, to be honest and communicate about that or, you know, those interactions and basically gauge the person's reaction Um to that conversation to determine how much that person was really concerned with your feelings and well-being. And, you know, I know you never tell people what to do, but you let them know that that's a good indication as to whether or not that person is a friend, you know, and I find that to be really good advice. Now, in my application of it, um, basically, this is what I've kind of come up with as it pertains to standard for my relationship. Um, the best definition I could find for a friend is a person who considers my well-being in their self-interest. And the reason I say that is because it's very obvious that humans primarily act based on their self-interest. Things that benefit them, things that make them feel good, comfortable, are the things they generally pursue. And in very close and what I consider to be emotionally beneficial relationships, a person is affected negatively when someone they care about closely is hurt in some way, you know. As I've heard you talk about before, if your daughter's upset, you know, you know, you don't, you don't just. But it's nothing. Sorry, sorry go ahead, but go the, ahead, there's Brent. nothing moral in that definition. There's nothing moral. I understand that. That's totally subjective. But obviously, everyone has different emotional makeups, and that self knowledge enables a person to know what's good for them emotionally to a certain extent. Agree? Disagree? Oh, I don't know. I mean, this like, what was the definition again? Someone who your 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 my happiness is part of their self interest. They consider my well being to be in their self interest. Yeah, I mean, but well being is a very subjective thing Absolutely. as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, so uh, there's nothing moral about that, and I I think friendship, uh, if it doesn't have a moral dimension, then it, it's not worthy of the name. Uh, a friend, to me, a, a friend is somebody who um, reminds that we remind and, and encourage each other of the, the joys of life and the necessity of virtue. And you know, you can't you can't go around reminding each other of the necessity of virtue of all times, but to add to the joys and and remind each other of the joys of life and to remind each other of the necessity of virtue, that to me is is the, the, the best friendship uh, around. This is just off the top of my head. Maybe gotcha. that could be refined gotcha. over time. Gotcha. But um, I think that uh, friendship without virtue, I, d I don't think is, it, it's then just around ranking compatibility and a bunch of subjective notions. I don't think that there would be anything philosophical or moral about any of that. And I think that the morality is necessary. Uh, you know, as I've talked about, love is our involuntary response to virtue. If we're virtuous, and since friendship is uh, certainly falls under the umbrella term of love, then friendship, which doesn't have 
any virtue uh, baked into its definition wouldn't respond. Now, I know that's somewhat circular, but it wouldn't respond to that definition of love being our involuntary response to virtue if we're virtuous. Steph, don't you think that, I guess, for that definition to kind of stick, that it assumes that the average person has a rational, empirical view of what's ethical? Uh, just to kind of give us a small example, you know, a lot of people might think that, including people as influential as Warren Buffett thinks that uh, it's a moral thing to have a society wherein you have a group of people with a monopoly on force in the center of society extracting resources from the public to ensure that, you know, the poor are taken care of. You know, people mm-hmm. like Christopher Hitchens, as I just mentioned, Warren Buffett, they said, you know, the care of the poor shouldn't be left to the whims of wealthy people, you know, and therefore that is the moral justification for a state or welfare state in that instance. And, you know, of course you and I would disagree with them, but there are an overwhelming number of people who would agree with them, despite that being theft. Um, Right. No, I I get all of that. I understand that. And, and they're not immoral for believing that if they have a genuine belief in the virtue and value and rationality of their argument. Now, the, the question isn't, isn't, are you moral before you encounter a more rational argument? The question is, are, you know, how do you handle a more rational argument? Well, right? I mean, people, well, couldn't be two people um, with, even with the same leanings disagree? I mean, I saw that uh, debate you had with Walter Block, and he was arguing more from a legalistic uh, libertarian perspective, which justified spanking. You know, now obviously you and I disagree with it, but we're all libertarians. Um, under his view, though, it's only applicable to responsible adults. Get well, no, he said he said Walter Block made the rather jaw-dropping statement that libertarianism has nothing to do with ethics. So um, I I don't know what he was fundamentally <laughs> arguing about or from. I think basically, you know, if if it's nothing to do with ethics, then you're bigger and you're stronger, so you can hit people. But that includes the government. So, um, so anyway, I mean, yeah, people could disagree. Of course, of course. I mean, I disagree with myself about things I may have said in the past. I certainly was pro Iraq War prior to the show, and I'm glad that I changed my mind about that because seeing the fallout of what has happened since the destruction of the existing Iraqi state has been unbelievably brutal and continues to be unbelievably brutal. So, um, yeah, people can, does this mean that I was evil uh, when I supported the Iraq war? No, Uh, I had the best information and the best arguments and was following uh, the the best reasoning that I had at the time. You know, if if, if before I take uh, some course in um, uh, learning Japanese, it doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm dumb because I didn't know Japanese. I just didn't have the knowledge, right? So people exist uh, in, um, a state of, of non-immorality if they're pursuing their best conscience and their best knowledge, right? I mean, a doctor in the 17th century would be considered a murderer now, but could very well be considered a good doctor, and rightly so, in the 17th century because he was doing the best he could with the knowledge and tools that he had. But if you tried to take those knowledge and tools and do them now, you'd be like a butcher who'd show up in uh, a really bad season of Nip Tuck. So... <laughs> So, yeah, it's like four people. <laughs> anyway, but um, so I uh, I obviously watch too much TV, number one. Number two that is show. that, um, uh, yeah, people can, can disagree. And, and if, they, if they come up with 
really bad, emotionally defensive, insulting arguments when you come up with a different perspective. Like if you, if I were to debate Christopher Hitchens, uh, if he were still alive, about the welfare state, and he basically was like, well, this guy just obviously doesn't care about the poor, and he's a tool of the right-wing Koch brothers conglomerate of blah, 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 that would be very disappointing. That would be very disappointing, because it would mean then he basically is hostile towards religion because religion makes bad arguments. And then when someone challenges his political viewpoints, then he would then be hostile to that person because he's making bad arguments and, and would simply do ad hominems. Or if Christopher Hitchens was still alive and Christopher Hitchens were looking at the wreckage of Iraqi society now being overrun by crazy guys who set people on fire in cages and behead people and, and kill you know, lots of, anyway, those guys and say, well, you know, uh, maybe it wasn't that great an idea, or maybe the consequences have been somewhat negative. Maybe uh, there's something I missed in the capacity of uh, an imperialist nation to bring civility to uh, a very savage region of the world. Well, but if he's like, no, I still believe it was a great idea and nothing can convince me otherwise, then he would hold a fundamentally religious view of the conflict, which is it doesn't matter what evidence comes in. It doesn't matter how bad things get. Uh, it doesn't matter any of that stuff. Or if one were to point out that, you know, one can't do good with stolen money and the money that was used to pay for the war in Iraq uh, was uh, stolen from the future, was stolen from the unborn, was stolen from the children, was stolen from the current population against their will. Then, uh, and if he said, well, you could vote and this and that and the other, right? Well, you know, voting doesn't change morality. Otherwise, uh, Hitler would never have been prosecuted or his generals because they were all voted in. So um, uh, it, it's when people are exposed to a more rational argument, to uh, information that even if there's consequentialist arguments, if the consequences don't go the way that they expect, right? Like, I mean, so the, the, the welfare state was supposed to accelerate the elimination of poverty. Poverty was re going down by one percentage point a year in the post-Second World War period in America. We were within a stone's throw of eliminating all but voluntary poverty within a generation. The welfare state was simply supposed to accelerate the end of poverty, and now uh, it has not done that at all, right? So if people then say, well, that doesn't matter, right, then the consequences don't matter. And if consequences don't matter and rational arguments don't matter, you're dealing with a religious or, or fundamentalist viewpoint. And, and the same thing happens with atheists and communists or people on the left, right? Or, or the problem wasn't communism, the problem was people or, you know, Stalin wasn't really a communist and neither was Mao or Chiang Kai-shek or, actually, no, Chiang Kai-shek wasn't a communist. Neither was Mao or the people in charge of Cambodia or whatever, right? I mean, they're not, not, not real communists and none of the Eastern European bloc countries are not real communists. Cuba is not real communism. Come on, at some point, at some point. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that... Um, no, I mean, but so then people say, well, what about America? I say, oh, but well, that's not capitalism and so on. Well, capitalism requires uh, free, a free market of money first and foremost. And that, that's a basic definition of capitalism is that you have a free market. And the most important thing to have a free market in is money because that's the tool by which all transactions occur, uh, or at least most transactions occur. Uh, and um, so if there's no free market in money, if there's no competing currencies, uh, then there's no free market. Uh, it's, not, it's not capitalistic fundamentally. Um, I mean, people people traded goods in a barter system in Russia that doesn't make it a capitalist country because there was no legally recognized private property and free market uh, in most goods and services. And in the same way, in the supposedly capitalist countries, there's no legally recognized property rights and a free market in currency. 
The currency is a state monopoly, and therefore it's fundamentally fascistic, certainly not uh, capitalistic. Uh, the first market is always money, and if there's no market in money, there's no market. Everything else is just uh, a disaster waiting to unravel. So uh, you just keep providing people better arguments and better information, and um, you see what they do with it, right? Like, so I've repeated in this show before the statistic that, you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Turns out that's complete bullshit. That has about as much relevance to marriages ending in divorce as like one in four and one in five rape victims on a campus, for God's sakes. I mean, it's all just a bunch of propaganda nonsense made up that's not even remotely true. And... Um, so in, in receiving that better information, um, we are now putting together a presentation to explicate all of that and clear up misconceptions and, and things that I've said before that have turned out to be mistaken because, you know, you can't check absolutely everything. You know, if the world turns out to be banana shaped, I hope I'll be forgiven for applying, pointing out that it was kind of like a sphere. So, um, so it's, it's what happens when you get access to uh, better and different information. Uh, that's the question of um, where the integrity comes in. So no, nobody has to be perfect. Lots of people believe lots of things that are false. I believe things that are false. I'm sure I believe things that are false right now. The question is what happens when you get better information or better arguments. That's where the integrity shows up. Yeah, I agree with that 110% as well. And um, Steph, wouldn't you also agree, though, that um, even the most sincere truth seeker can sometimes have the problem of the confirmation bias, particularly if they've defended a position or an idea or a body of beliefs for so long that they find themselves more entrenched in trying to defend this particular train of thought or these particular set of ideas as opposed to um, just continuing to follow the data or the information wherever it leads. Um, no, absolutely. If they're, if they're yeah, no, I mean, might... I was raised to, to sure. believe that multiculturalism was always a great value. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, I ran a newsletter um, promoting multiculturalism and so on. And I was raised with that. That's just an automatic value. Mm -hmm. Our diversity is our strength. <laughs> I think that was said by the I think that was said by uh, the head of the U.S. Army recently. Our diversity is our strength. It's like, mm, I'm pretty sure it's the bombers and the bullets and the bombs <laughs> and the tanks. I think that's your strength. I don't think diversity is necessarily your strength. Um, and, and seeing data that challenged that was startling, was very startling. And, um, you know, seeing the arguments for racial disparities is startling and is unsettling. And... Um, I don't know. I mean, I also believed in, in, you know, death by environmentalism and reading Bjorn Lundberg's uh, The Skeptical Environmentalist uh, was um, challenging, to say the least. I mean, I did a show with him years ago through the Casey Group, and it's hard. You know, it's hard to get this counter information, and uh, confirmation bias is, is always a challenge. So I, you know, I, I can't tell you, uh, other than we know it's a challenge, and we have to read uh, conflicting and opposing opinions uh, as as best we can. I was raised at, you know, mixed economy, free market bits and socialist bits. I mean, that is the very best. It's the pinnacle. It's the end of history. It's the hum best human civilization. And, you know, finding out that, to say the least, some arguments against that is hard. You know, I was an objectivist for years and years and years and, and finding out that there's, at least in my perspective, which I've made the case for before, that some limitations, uh, some challenges, it's hard. And, um, you know, all I can say is that uh, knowing that that's a tendency of people, 
be gentle with them when challenging them on that. Be firm, but, you know, be gentle and recognize that, you know, if your cherished beliefs are being undermined and attacked, you'd probably want to uh, somebody be kind of gentle with you, too. But uh, but not too gentle for too long, because, you know, at some point we got to move the debate forward. But, yeah, it, it is a challenge. And, you know, but once you know it's a challenge, you know, um, if I know I have a sweet tooth, then I got to be careful around dessert. right? Yeah, absolutely. The reason I asked the question the way I did is because, um, for instance, with libertarianism, you know, there's absolutely no other, if we're going to use this expression, political ideology that I think matches it. I mean, if the justification for a state is to protect the freedoms of an individual, um, how on earth can you justify policies that directly uh, hurt individuals to the benefit of others? You know, um, I was trying to get some clarity on my position and I kind of wrote sort of like a journal or a blog entry, something like that. And Basically, what I said was that generally when people argue for different uh, political ideologies, they say certain things don't work, right? They say trickle-down economics do not work or a welfare state doesn't work. Whatever your leanings are, you say this or that doesn't work. Oh, yeah. Or, or the big one is uh, deregulation caused the, the 2007 crash. Exactly, exactly. But no one ever stops and says, well, what do you mean by work? You know what I mean? Obviously, <laughs> if something has to work, there needs to be some sort of objective, right? Or it has been proven that. It has been definitively established that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the time for debate is past. <laughs> Man-made climate, catastrophic anthropogenic global warming is real. The time for debate is past. It's like, mm, whether in 100 years you think that's a completely absolutely unquestionable absolute i don't think you know what science is yeah but i mean excuse me i guess my basic point is that if if it's all about objectives then you have to consider whose objective is is the focus you know and only libertarianism allows for as many individuals as possible using their own resources their own relationships relationships, et cetera, to pursue whatever it is their objectives are, you know? So even in the most general sense of things working for individuals, the idea of libertarianism works yet even some very staunch advocates of it, David Friedman being one will very quickly highlight some problems with it in that it doesn't always lead you to the desirable conclusion. And then the question is, what is the implication of that? Does that mean that you scrap the ide ideology um, totally because it doesn't give you the universality you want? Um, I think if you go on YouTube, he has this discourse he gave, I think it was like 1979, 1980, wherein he gives an example of uh, an anarchist society that obviously doesn't have a state and um, you know has the problem of national defense. And it says, if the Russians want to bomb the U.S., um, what do you do? You know. Um, do you force a whole bunch of people to um, pay to, so that you get an armed militia? Um, or what if there is a threat that if you don't kill them, um, they'll come and kill a significant number of people in your area. But for you to defend yourself, it's going to force you literally to trespass on someone else's property or to kill other people in the process. You know, you know, 
basically questions that don't have easy answers, whereas the implications of the ideology don't lead you to where you want to go. It's very hard for people to stick with their line of thought and, you know, come away sounding as if they're sane, you know. And so that's kind of what I find when it comes to my relationships. Um, when I talk to people about honesty, as you mentioned before, about understanding what their needs are, and whether or not this friendship serves their needs, those are extremely hard conversations for people because, you know, a lot of them are passive. You know, they associate with people when they want to be out, you know, they want to party, they want to drink, they want to hang out, they want to, uh, you know, sleep over at your house, they want to go on road trips. They think of things that, you know, at least I personally find to be shallow. I find to be, you know, not meaningful to any, any extent minus a good time. But then when it's time to truly be a friend, when it's time to talk about how the way a person's behavior affects you, the way a person's um, speech makes you feel about yourself, things like that, you know, people tend to be lost and they don't think that it's something that ought to come up. It's a hard conversation that ought to be avoided, you know, and that's why I kind of posed the question the way I did at the beginning, because it would almost seem that if a person sets standards for their relationships, you know, there's a very high likelihood of them being alone because, you know, most people deal with a lot of the problems that you mentioned at the outset, you know, honesty being penalized. And so them having to apply a filter to much of what they say and, you know, kind of being conditioned to not being open and honest and, no, yeah, but this, affecting this, their you know, if, you know, I, I got to interrupt because there's a false dichotomy. Look, sure. If I said to you, like, let's say you're really starving, right? Sure. And I, sorry, Andrew, let's say that I give you this, uh, this bowl full of plastic fruit, right? Sure. And I say, but, but if you don't eat this fruit, you'll be hungry. This plastic fruit, if you don't eat it, you'll be hungry. So eat it. What would you say? Of course not. It's not real food. Uh-huh. But if you say, well, if you have standards for relationships, you'll, you'll be alone. You're alone anyway, but you're more alone if you have these. If you don't have these standards and you're just blending with the local carbon-based life form Borg of history, you're, you're alone anyway. If you're not able to be honest, if you've got to hide, if you've got to dissemble, if you've got to pretend you don't believe what you do believe and pretend you do believe what you don't believe, you're worse than alone. At least if you don't eat the plastic fruit, you don't have plastic fruit coming out your ass. <laughs> right so you're you're alone either like either way you're alone but at least if you know, if you're actually alone you have the opportunity to get real relationships going but if you're embedded in these fake false lying nonsense relationships pseudo relationships relationships which are about the extinguishing of who you are you don't even have a chance to i'm too full of fake fruit i can't eat any real fruit right so this idea, well, if you have standards, you'll be alone. I vehemently reject that as a standard. If you fake who you are in your supposed relationships, you're worse than alone. You're worse than alone. Because being alone has significant advantages in life. Being alone has significant advantages in life. Whereas being consumed by relationships that train you as a liar, that train you as a faker, that, that train you as a sophist and a dissembler and a coward. Those relationships, 
have almost no advantages other than you get to breathe a little bit more carbon dioxide than you would otherwise. I agree with you, Steph, and I didn't mean to, if I did, imply that, um, you know, it's better to have relationships that aren't really fulfilling than to set standards for them and be alone. I definitely would prefer the latter, you know, um, which is why I asked the question of high turnover, because obviously if an individual, you know, applies a lot of the stuff that's talked about on your show, you know, they're, they're going to treat others with respect, with dignity, you know, view them as individuals. I especially love, love, love. I can't say that word enough about, um, you know, the idea that you advocate about extending personhood to children. And every time I see a child that, you know, is smart enough to have a conversation with me, I try to speak to them as if they're an adult, not with obviously subject matter, but, you know, just trying to be attentive and really hear whatever it is they're trying to say. And I, and I love to see their eyes lighten up when they see someone who's genuinely interested in what they're saying. So, you know, I, I definitely understand that, you know, you have to set standards for your relationships regardless of, you know, come what may. But I guess my real question is, do you have any, I guess, tips for people who are really trying to make application of it and have these close relationships? Because I hear you talk about marriage and you talk about having real relationships and long relationships, but it's very hard to have those relationships where people fall miserably short of that standard where people aren't honest, where people don't show respect, where people, um, I guess, when relationships can become abusive, not necessarily intentionally, but, you know, for instance, if a person has a giving disposition, obviously that's going to attract very needy people. And, you know, a person with a giving disposition of the needy person, you know, for a while, they might seem to kind of fulfill each other. You know, it may fulfill the paternalistic instinct in the giver and obviously any deficiencies in the needy person. But then after a while, if the person who has the paternalistic instinct may begin to feel as though they're giving way more to this relationship than they're getting from it, they then may, you know, feel abused. And if they ever bring that to the attention of the other individual, they'll say, hey, well, this is the way it's always been. What's wrong? You know, <laughs> so. You know, situations like that kind of, you know, have been my experience. And, you know, I'm wondering what I can do to kind of circumvent that because, you know, I, I generally have a, a love of people and, um, you know, I want close relationships, but at the same time, you know, I don't want them to be fake. I don't want them to be relationships that are emotional, emotionally detrimental to me or that make me feel as though I'm being used or, um, you know, that I, I'm not gaining as much as I put into this relationship. All right, I'm going to just end up with a rant here because I can't answer every one of these theoretical so I'll just I'll just end up with a rant here and hopefully it'll, it'll make Not some sense. I'll, I'll try to catch what's, what's applicable. Go ahead. <laughs> we have become strangely over delicate as of late. As a species, I would say, we have become very hothouse flower, very trembling hibiscus in a slight breeze our heads can fall off we have become very tremulous and and delicate most of us and we have become very risk averse i don't know what's happened to the 
balls of the species. You know, we used to cross planes. We used to tangle with tigers. We used to take down sharks with knives. Uh, Johnny Weissmiller used to do the same thing with crocodiles. I mean, we used to be pretty fucking tough as a species. People defood Europe to start the new world. I mean, you left your entire family, your whole culture, your everything, your language, your money. You, you, you basically packed up a sandwich and a spare pair of shoes and you went uh, across through a mule to a ship that took you six weeks to get across an ocean to land in a country where you had $12 in your tribe and $2 in your family and a quarter in your pocket. So we have this, we used to have these balls that we would, I mean, what, 60,000 years ago? I mean, humanity split into three major groups. And one group said, too fucking hot here. I'm going north. And you know what's going to be great about going north? Agriculture and winter and all this shit that's going to weed out nine-tenths of us. And the other one went, we're going to go over to Siberia (laughs) and really places that are even worse than Europe. And we just used to do these crazy things. And we used to go off in log boats across rivers, across oceans. A Thor Heyerdahl, the Contiki, recreated a lashed nine poles together and crossed the fucking Pacific. We used to be adventurous. We used to have hair on our chests. We used to look at the dawn and say, what colossal fuck-up can I do today that is going to randomly advance the species? We are based on genes that experiment and fail mightily. And we spread out and we waged war and we pushed the boundaries and we pushed the envelope geographically, philosophically, politically. There were revolutions. We broke with past orders. We had new gods. We forgot old gods. Mankind has forgotten more gods than it will ever worship in the future. And we overturned everything and we took down dynasties and we ended empires. And we broke the back of history to make way for the mammals of newness. And we regularly evolved out of dinosaurdom and everything that was the day before yesterday was a dinosaur and every impulse of the next five minutes was the new mammal that would conquer the world. And we had this questingness, we had this hunger, we had this explore or die. And there was land that would open up in the West. We're just uh, working on this uh, presentation about George Washington. But this land that would open up in the West. Here, 40 acres in the middle of nowhere. you got to clear it yourself. There's going to be bugs and bears and <laughs> mosquitoes the size of biplanes. You're going to be like Cary Grant in an old movie, ducking. And there's going to be diseases and there's going to be Indians. And it's going to be God knows what your neighbors are going to be like. And if you stub your toe and get an infection, you might as well just saw off your own foot. And we used to say, great, 40 acres, 
Fantastic. I've had it with this city. Off I go. Off I go into the middle of nowhere. Into the middle of nowhere. We used to be those guys. Those men and those women. We used to be willing to cast aside our whole lives, cast aside our whole tribe, cast aside our whole environment to explore the new world. The new world that we all value and live in for the most part. We broke with history. We broke with slavery. We broke with the aristocracy. We broke with the theocracy. These were savage, savage battles that we were born into and we fought and we won. And some of it, you know, like Aristotle says, there's an excess of courage that is foolhardiness. And yes, we should have been a little bit more fucking scared of machine guns in 1914. Would have been great for the planet as a whole. There is a little bit of off I go, a little bit over courage, a little bit of over courage. But we used to be very robust, a very robust people. And I don't know exactly, I don't know if it's all just raised by women. I, I, I don't know if it's single motherhood. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But something has happened. Something has happened to the point where it's like, well, but Aunt Edna, who's a school teacher, might not like me. And that's, to me, how the mighty balls have fallen and shrunk into Dust specks, specks hanging in a largely empty nutsack. I'm sorry to be so graphic. It's just the way I feel about it. It's not a philosophical argument. It may not apply to you. But it's like, but my second cousin who works for the IRS might disapprove of my theories. God, really? This is what stops us now? This is what stops the progress of the species? Imagine if this had been the case in the past. The abolitionist was like, slavery is wrong. Slavery is evil. Down with slavery. Well, what? Uh, what? Oh, I've got a third cousin who's a slave owner. I'm sorry for offending everyone. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let's keep going with the slavery because I don't want any awkward Thanksgiving dinners. No. Awkwardness should be the first course at Thanksgiving dinners. Because with awkwardness comes challenge. And when did it ever become what we're so frail in our beliefs that counter-information enrages us like tantrums who, from two-year-olds who can't get lollipops? I did this video on the defense of marriage. And say everyone has to get married and have kids. Like, here, here's the plus sides about marriage. Ah! Like, what? MGTOW people, you can't get counter-information without having tantrums? Marriage might not be for you, but maybe it's not because there's a problem with marriage. <sighs> anyway, this idea that you just can't get counter-information without getting offended and upset. Man, God, we used to be robust. There used to be these very powerful debates. There used to be these very great differences of opinions. And yes, sometimes families would split down the line, down the middle, and some would become Protestants and some would remain Catholics, and some people would be abolitionists, and some people would be pro-slavery, and there would be schisms, and there would be splits, and there would be people who would not talk to each other because of moral foundations and because of moral commitments. And now I don't know what's happened, but it's like all of a sudden it's just like Ah, well, we have a difference of opinion morally. We can't have that. We've got to all stay so quiet. We can't have any conflicts. No, 
have conflicts. Make the tabletop jump with the force of difference of opinion. That's called progress. We've become so risk averse. And the weird thing is that everything we like, everything we enjoy, everything that is important to us that is made by men was made by people who said, fuck risk. I may not love it, but I'm going to embrace it. Like that smelly aunt <laughs> who uses way too many mothballs. May not love her, going to give her a hug. May not love risk, going to embrace it. Right, so and people say, well, marriage is too risky. Marriage is too risky. Eh, so what? Do you like your computer that you're typing marriage is too risky on? Do you know that that computer was built by a guy? In a company that was founded by a guy who said, fuck risk. Fuck risk. Forget it. I mean, if you're as smart as Michael Dell, you can make a huge living as a salesman. That guy is a killer salesman, right? No, no, no. He's like, I'm going to found a company. Forget it. I'm, I'm, I'm sick and tired of selling computers in my dorm rooms. And start a company. Grows a company. And these guys, everything that you use around you that's man-made is people who said, screw risk. I'm doing it anyway. And, and yes, government is heavily involved in marriage and there's risk because of that. Guess what, man? Government's heavily involved in everything. Everything government can screw you up on. I know, I've been an entrepreneur. I'm still an entrepreneur. Government could pass a law tomorrow that could shut down this whole show completely. Right? The government could pass a law that says, I got to get a license and I got to spend five. The government could do anything they want to anything. Every business could get a law passed against it. Every business could get a tax hike. Every business could get some crappy government-sponsored union in there that screws everything up. Everyone who builds everything does so in the face of government interference. Are you going to give away everything that's good in your life because there's a stink of government on it? Well, welcome to not living anywhere near civilization. But everybody who's saying, well, I want to type about how marriage is too risky is typing on keyboards and computers through an internet that was built because people said, screw risk, we don't care if the government's involved, we're doing it anyway. But we've become so tremulous and so scared. We are like a nation, a planet of frady cats. Well, no, except for the crazy religious extremists. They're acting on their beliefs, aren't they? Aren't they pretty much doing what the Bible and the other religious books tells them to do? Aren't a lot of them really committed to what it is that they're doing? And we're like, well, I don't know. I might offend some people in my life. So I really don't really want to talk about peaceful parenting. And I don't really want to talk about a free society. And I don't really want to talk about violence and taxation and theft. And I don't really want to talk about the counterfeiting of national currencies. And I don't really want to talk about the intergenerational theft of national debts. And I don't really want to, well, is ISIS interested in setting up an Islamic caliphate? Why, yes, they are. Are they doing a lot about it? Yes, they are. But we don't want to even offend our third cousin who works for the state by talking about it. When did we are like, especially the Western European Freedom Club. Holy crap, we had balls so heavy they clanged from one side to the other like the bells of Big Ben. And now we're just so... Steph says that you have to act with integrity. And Steph says that you should confront people about the violence they support against you. And that's really bad. <laughs> is it true? Oh, but it's offensive. Is it true? No, but it's, it bothers me. Is it true? 
do you have a counter argument or are you just mewling like a baby cat in my ear trying to distract me from something from which I cannot be distracted, which is what I'm up to? Well, I, I don't know. You see, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm a peaceful parent, my own parents might get upset. Really, were they bothered about upsetting you when they were spanky parents? So let them survive a little bit being upset because the whole reason they weren't optimum parents is they didn't really care that much about you being upset or they wanted you to be upset, which is why they punished you. Oh, but the, the people who work for the government might be upset if I'm an anarchist or a libertarian. Well, are they very upset about taking your money by gunpoint? No, they're not. They're very happy about it. So they can maybe live with a little emotional discomfort given that they're taking your stolen money as their pay. Maybe they can feel a little bit uncomfortable when they eat the mashed potatoes that they're taking out of your ass. The idea that we've just become this don't offend anyone, don't bother anyone, don't upset anyone. I can't handle it when people don't like something that I'm doing. Who does that paralyze the most? It's part of the whole evil rules the world. This is what is keeping people down. It is only those who are empathetic whose empathy is used against them. Why, what is the problem with the Freedom Club? The problem with the Freedom Club is the Freedom Club is the Freedom Club because of empathy, because of universalization. Why do we have rights for everyone? Because we empathize. We could be those other people. How would you feel if you were... How would you feel if you were... How would you feel in this person's shoes, right? No, 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 no. That's good for developing universal rights, but it's very bad if we then empathize with people who are committed to harming us, who are committed to stealing from us, who are committed to exploiting us or supporting a system that does exactly that. That is where empathy stops. It must stop because we must have empathy for the future. We must have empathy for virtue. We must have empathy for the right. But we're told suddenly everyone's equal, so we can't get mad at anyone. We can't offend anyone. Nobody can be upset. And if somebody is upset, that means we're in the wrong. No. If bad people are upset, we're in the right. If you're fighting cancer and the cancer was sentient, the cancer would hate you if you were winning. That's the point. That's the point. This idea that we can't upset anyone is implanted to us by bad people who then don't have to reply to our arguments, don't have to reply to the facts or the data. All they have to be is upset and somehow we're wrong. But that's lazy people who want to exploit us and don't, don't want to think or have no good arguments. They substitute, I'm offended, I'm upset, I'm outraged, I'm fainting. I don't feel safe. I need a safe place. I need a teddy bear and a cookie and a hug. Can't believe that meat man said this. Oh my God, have we all become 12-year-old girls? I mean, is that where the destiny of the human race is? The race that conquered the planet? The race that conquered the moon? The race that is going to conquer the entire fucking solar system? Well, we don't offend anyone. Nobody's going to offend anyone. going to upset. <laughs> ah! Ah! Who told us this? Why was it even remotely believed? Every goddamn thing that has come great out of human history, every progress... Pisses off just about everyone else around. Every were the were the dinosaurs happy that the mammals ate all their food? Are we happy to not be dinosaurs? Why, yes, we are. Is the dinosaurs going hungry? The price of us being sentient beings? I'm fine with that. Fuck you, dinosaurs. We got the food. We evolved. We're better. 
And it's the same thing among human beings as well. Got better ideas. I'm sorry. They just kind of came to me. Got better ideas, better evidence, better arguments, better presentation. Sorry. That's the way it is. And if you've got better arguments, better evidence, call in. Tell me where I'm wrong. It's an open forum here. We get six or seven hours a week. Come on, call in. Tell me how I'm wrong. Oh, don't you want to do that? Oh, you just want to be upset. Okay. Good luck with that, dinosaur. We'll just get the food. Good luck. No, 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 no. We are not all equal in the human race. There are good people and there are bad people. You know, there's these studies that have come out recently, which I massively applaud, about how great religion is for people, about how it protects people from dysfunctional behavior. Absolutely beautiful. I'm behind that 150%. Do you know why religion is so great for people? Religion is so great for people because religion reminds people of evil, that there is evil in the world. Now, they supernaturalize it and they say, well, people are the puppets of the world. No, they re- you can't have a functional life if you don't believe in evil. You can't fun- It's like being a doctor who doesn't believe there's any difference between health and sickness. What's your job? You've got no job. If you're a doctor, you don't believe in health, you don't believe in sickness, you're a fraud. You've got nothing to do. I'm a mathematician, but all numbers are the same. No, you're not a mathematician. You're a fraud. And if you don't believe in evil, what the hell are you going to do with your life? Video games and porn? TV shows? Uh, sex? Money? Buy stuff? Fuck. Fuck, that's like a tree growing into its own roots and calling itself procreative. You've got nothing to do if there's no evil to fight. If there's no illness. There's no need for doctors. The whole profession is a fraud. And if there's no evil, there's no need for virtue. And that's why, you see, evil people will try to tell you that there's no such thing as evil to make you cast aside the necessity of virtue. As the old saying goes, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he doesn't exist. And the reason why religion protects people is because religion reminds people that there's evil in the world. And that their job is to do good. And their job is to do right, to be righteous, to do moral things. Because morality is uncomfortable. And religion says it's worth it for heaven. It's worth it because God wants you to be virtuous. The devil wants you to be bad. And you get to go to heaven if you're good. And going to heaven makes people willing to make their second cousin uncomfortable. And there's no secular equivalent to evil other than that's inappropriate. That's dysfunctional. That makes me uncomfortable. Oh yeah, there's a moral crusade. Let's make you comfortable. Because that way, the world doesn't have to be a battle between good and evil. The world can be an extra fucking pillow for your big ass. Because comfort's all we care about now. Edward Gibbons in the decline and fall of Roman Empire. Five things that brought down Rome. Destruction of the family. An excess of taxation. An excess of arguments. An addiction to merely sensual and materialistic pleasures. And the fall of religious values. 
When people can tell you there's no God, the next thing they want you to believe is there's no evil. And I have more respect for communism than secular leftism. Because at least communism said, there's evil, he's over there, he's fat, and he wears a monocle, let's go get him. I didn't approve of them. <laughs> go get him. But any belief system that does not recognize the reality of evil is stripping you of the capacity to do good. And because we have forgotten that there's evil in the world, we have forgotten that there is some goddamn things in the world that are damn well worth making people uncomfortable about. I'm sorry that taxation is theft. It's not my fucking fault that that's a fact. I'm sorry that fiat currency is counterfeit intergenerational theft and fraud. That's not my fault. I didn't invent it. I didn't make it wrong. Don't shoot the messenger. It's not my fault that two and two make four. It's not my fault there's no God. It's not my fault that governments are immoral. It's not my fault that public schools are indoctrination. It's not my fault that people are lied to and other people kiss and lick the boots of those who lie. It's not my fault for telling you what is true. I didn't make it up. I didn't conjure this into existence. Thou shalt not steal is a moral reality. It's a moral fact. And people literally <laughs> post that they're offended, that they're upset. And you're saying, you, I mean, I mean this positively, and I mean this encouragingly, and I, you don't have to do anything with this. now. just sit and think about it. And maybe tomorrow you'll wake up and say, I don't know what was in that guy's hot buttered coffee enema, but A, I never want it for myself, and B, he's full of shit. Well, I guess not with a hot buttered coffee enema, but you know what I mean. But... There are things important enough for us to endure social discomfort. And if you can't endure social discomfort, slowly step away from the philosophy. I'm dead serious. Step away from the philosophy. If you can't handle injecting people with a life-saving vaccine, don't pretend to be a nurse and pretend to inject people and faint. Well, if I could very briefly interject, yeah. Steph, I have no problem with the ideology of fucking shit up and leaving, especially when it comes to advancing truth. So that's not, I guess, really what I'm getting at. You know, I've gotten into debates with a number of people about these very issues, and, you know, people have disagreed with me vehemently, um, but for the sake of onlookers, I've always tried to be extremely civil about it so that at least... At the end, you know, even if people didn't really have a dog in the race, they saw that reason prevailed and they saw, well, this person doesn't have to resort to ad hominems or, um, you know, any sort of disrespect. There might be a little more validity in his position. Let me inquire a little bit more about that. What I'm really getting at is the relationships that, you know, people with self-knowledge, you know, who agree with, you know, most of the things that you said, you know, for rational and empirical reasons the relationships that they choose to have, you know, all of us, obviously, well, I can't really speak for everyone who listens to the show, but I can speak for me and a number of your callers whose conversations with you have at least captured my attention. You know, they care about these issues, and based on their set of abilities, based on their ability to articulate the arguments, they want to advance 
philosophy. They want to advance empirical analysis and truth and the like. But we understand looking at the world, you know, as you as you mentioned in your oh, there, you, you, you got to look at the, the chase world. Here, or at least you've got to use more than one tone in your in your speech. Uh, okay, well, can you sum this up or at least vary your tone a little? Um, well, it's very hard to sum it up, you know, going back to No, no, it's not that hard to sum things up. I mean, you, you've, you've had time to think about this question. What is the issue? Well, it was really a question that I'm not sure if you answered, but you didn't promise me that you'd answer it. You told me via rant. Okay, what's the question? Do you, have, do you have any advice on how individuals who are seeking self-knowledge, any methodology for them to choose emotionally beneficial relationships, given the state of the world, given the state of affairs. Okay, well, what what did I say at the very beginning? At the very beginning of the rant or the or the call? No, this this call. Um, you said honesty. Okay, so is that not an answer that satisfies you? Um, so let me see if I got your answer right. Because, Be because here's what's so, troublesome. Here's what's troublesome, and I'm just giving you this feedback honestly. I'm not trying to be mean. But the reality is, you asked me a question and I gave you an answer with some explanation. Now you're asking me exactly the same question after we've been talking for an hour as if I had not said anything. Now, I'm not saying you have to accept what it is that I've said, but I think you have to at least acknowledge that I've said something, right? Okay. So Does that, does that so seem reasonable? So you can reject what I'm saying, but it's weird. It's like, it's like, it's like the last hour just didn't happen. Well, Steph, you know, you obviously said a lot, so it's it's not like it's, it's but you asked clear the same question is, so. as if I hadn't said anything. So essentially, your your answer to that question is be honest. Okay. Yes. Yes. And it, it took me an hour to say be honest. I think that's that's where we go. So we're going to move on to the end of the show. But I really do appreciate everyone who called in. And it was always a, a fantastically enjoyable show. Uh, I really do appreciate people's questions, issues, comments, and problems. Please, please, please help out the show um, and just to make sure that I get some mercurochrome for my uh, throat to fix it. But um, if you can go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show, please help us spread this most essential conversation. Please help us spread discomfort and hostility <laughs> towards philosophy through the ever-incursing um, wave of philosophy we are generating from here in the mothership in Canada. So thanks, everyone, so much. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon.